Fuck me, we are away to the races. All right. Okay, so, um, Connor Leahy, it's an absolute honor to meet you in real life for the second time, actually, but, you know, to interview you in, in real life. Uh, you've been on the show many times now, actually. So we, we, of course, interviewed you about alignment and safety, but then you were a co-interviewer with Jeff Hawkins and with Carl Friston. And, uh, yeah, it's just amazing to actually have all of the expensive video equipment and to do a high-quality recording with you. So, uh, yeah, welcome to MLST. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, what a way we've come. Well, I was just going to say that. So now Connor is the CEO of Conjecture. And I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to imagine this a couple of years ago. I mean, you really had the foresight to see how important this technology is. And Walid Saba recently came on the show and he admitted that he was wrong about large language models. Respect to him. Respect to my man. Yeah, I mean, at least at least he has the, the humility. And, and, you know, not to misrepresent him, he still says that there are limitations with semantics and pragmatics, but... Let's not ignore the success of large language models. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we did that first video, which has been watched 150,000 times now. Yeah. And um, even at the time, people said it was really cool that we were showing both, both views, you know, the, the extreme end of, of both ends. And I think it's fair to say that you've come out on top <laughs> on that particular Well, point. well, well. Yeah. Many such cases. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing was, I was convinced that you were fooled by randomness because the first version of GPT-3, um, to me, it was obvious that it was just kind of pattern matching. And there are so many examples you were citing of, no, no, Tim, wake up. It's really reasoning. It's really doing something interesting here. And there are many different ways of coming at this. I think, do you remember, you, get, you gave us secret access to the API, so yeah. we were we were using the API through this kind of rubbish interface that, that I think one of your friends had made or something, or maybe you'd made it. And part of, part of the magic of, of GPT-3 is the interface and, and how, how it's presented to you as well. So there's a bit of that. When it went to DaVinci 2, that was a huge kind of psychological shift for me. I was actually thinking, oh my God. And also I started to trust it in a weird way. And don't get me, a lot of this is still being fooled by randomness. Like um, I'm, I'm kind of cherry picking without realizing, but in many cases, I do trust the output, especially in the, um, part of it is me learning how to use the model. So when I'm saying, here's some text, summarize it for me, it, it basically never makes any mistakes. If I'm saying, tell me about this thing that you know about, then it's more likely to hallucinate. I mean, what, how do you think about it? Yeah, so I, I think it's good you bring up the the idea of the interface and how important that is and how to interact with the model. I think one of the fundamental differences when I first saw the model compared to a lot of other people when they first saw the model is that GPT has this terrible interface problem, still has this problem, it's gotten better, where you're like, okay, you have this grand, great AI system, most powerful AI system ever built, and then you click on the link and you get a white text box, empty text box. Like, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do with this? Like, you know, <laughs> you type in some stuff, you click a button, and maybe it outputs something is like, sort of interesting, or maybe not, or who knows, whatever. And then you're like, eh, okay. And then you just kind of, like, don't give it a second thought. And so what was different for me is that, you know, after having worked with these systems way more, and having seen people who are very good at prompting it, and mm -hmm. spent hours, like, hundreds and thousands of hours prompting these models, and, like, mm -hmm. them showing me what these things could do, and also, you know, me just kind of having um, 
worked with the previous generation of models and just have you know drawing a straight line on the curve being like okay well i saw gpt2 you know 100m and i was pretty familiar with what that could do and then i saw the straight line of how it just you know just went straight to gpt3 like just reliably things that didn't work with smaller model some of them started working with larger models some of them started working with even larger models some of them started working etc cetera, et cetera. so i just kind of like extrapolated it was always obvious that like gpt3 had many problems and there was many ways to improve it like a lot, sometimes people ask me, Connor, you know, ChatGPT came out. Wow, it's so crazy. It's so good. Has this updated your like beliefs on like AI or something? I'm like, no, it was super predictable. Like, just draw a line, bro. <laughs> yeah, just just draw a straight line. It's like the interesting thing about ChatGPT is, um, in my impression at least, is that it can't really do actually anything that GPT three couldn't already do. It just does it really reliably, and it it has a better interface because it has like the like chat interface, which is like more natural for humans, but like. Most of the actual tasks that you ask ChatGPT can do, like maybe not GPT three, but like DaVinci or like DaVinci two, mm. could do if you're good at prompting. Yeah. So, in that sense, it wasn't a huge advance in capability so much as an advance in interface and advance advance in a way to make it more reliable and kind of show the things that you could have already seen if you're already pretty deep into it. Mm-hmm. So I see like ChatGPT and DaVinci two and such as like just like like. Um, reliability improvements, just engineering, quote-unquote. Yeah, I mean, we've crossed a threshold, though, and we'll, we'll get into the RLHF in, in, in a bit, but I think something like a million people used ChatGPT in the first five days, which from a product market fit point of view is better, than, better than any other tech startup ever. Yep. Uh, so everyone is signing on to it now, and it's a little bit like when the World Wide Web came out, nobody understood that it was going to change the world and, until it did. Yeah. So there's a bit of that. I, I, I agree with you that there is a huge technical component to knowing how to prompt it. I've been doing it pro- probably for about six months now with DaVinci 2. I use it for absolutely every single component of my life. I always have about 20 tabs open. And the thing is, there are so many domain-specific applications for language models, but I prefer just being in the playground and on OpenAI. Um, I honestly... I can't even tell you how many things I use it for, like understanding code, writing code. I mean, yesterday I, I got it to write me a byte, uh, a byte pairing code in C sharp. So I just copied the Python code and I said, you know, translate this into C sharp. And when there are errors, I just paste the errors in and I say, oh, it's giving me this problem. Um, this is the state of the array. So the hash table has these values in. Um, you know, can you explain this step by step? Can you fix it? What's the problem? What's the time complexity? It's just unreal. General intelligence is a great product. Well, I mean, the the thing is, like, you can (laughs) say that, oh, it's just information retrieval, it's just this, it's just that. But, you know, like, in a way, people have got to wake up that it is a receding horizon. And I have to admit that if you can use it for literally anything, you know, don't get me wrong, there are are gaps, but you fill in the gaps because if it misunderstands something or it does something, I'm trying not to use anthropomorphic language, understands, we'll talk about that in a minute. But... um, as an extension to my own cognitive apparatus, it's it's revolutionary. Yep, I, I agree. It's an incredibly useful product. It's you can do incredibly useful things with it. It's reached kind of like a reliability horizon. It's only going to increase. There's like things it can't do. Sure, I I could tell you like several. I have tested these models and I know a bunch of things they can't currently do, mm-hmm. or they can't at least do it reliably at all. But I think yeah, it's like obvious these things can do incredibly useful things. They. You know, these aren't hard-coded capabilities. These are general capabilities it picked up from training data. Mm-hmm. It can, it can re- you know, reply to extremely free-form kind of inputs, and, like, it can be 
creative and flexible and do all these kind of things. Sure, all these things have limitations, but I mean, you know, <laughs> you know my feelings on this. It's just pretty obvious to me that this is just my, my crazy prediction. The crazy prediction I have for what will happen in the future. People ask me, Connor, you know, okay, you made some good predictions about GPT or whatever. What do you think is going to come next? I'm just like, this will just continue. What happened over the last two years is just going to happen again over the next two years, and it's going to happen again over the next two years after that, and the next two years after that. And then at some point, you're just going to have a system that can just do everything, and it's going to do it better than anyone else. I know, but, but this is where, because the thing is, I'm, I'm trying to be measured here, and while I accept that it's, it's made remarkable progress, especially in syntax, I can think of all of these, you know, limitations, and maybe you disagree with me and we can explore it, but, you know, a lot of people think that syntax and meaning is, is a Wittgenstein-like language game, for example. And, you know, it's about finding a shared understanding and things need to be grounded in, in the real world and there's the whole implicature and context thing. Um, so I, I can see lots of examples, you know, good reasons why we might hit a limit quite soon, but you, you don't think that we will. I'm making the simpler prediction. My simpler prediction is, is just, if you don't know anything about the future, predict what has happened so far will happen again, unless you have information otherwise. And I have not seen good in, in like good reasons to believe that there was something will dramatically change. Like un unless you take in like compute limitations, like we're mm -hmm. soon going to hit the just like physical limits of how big we can build computers and how big of training ones we can do. That's still a few years out. Like mm -hmm. GPT four is still around the horizon, and I, you know we can do a GPT four point five. It's going to get tricky to get to a GPT five with current hardware and budgets. Um, you know if things scale as they have so far. So we're, we're catching up on like investment um, overhang, you know, because mm -hmm. GPT-3 costs you know, like I don't know, a few million dollars to make. You know, big companies can can spend more than that if they need to. They can spend, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions. But billions, it's going to get a bit tricky. Trillions, probably not. So, so no one's going to spend a trillion dollars on a model. I'm going to I'm predicting in the next, you know, five years, but ten years, who knows? Probably not. But who knows? Um, but Billion, maybe, but like 100 million, yeah, absolutely. Like I expect that like JPT-4 probably costs 100 million or something in that, in that order of magnitude. And if not, then such models will probably follow soon. So we're going to see a really big increase in that regard. And there will be some amount of diminishing returns, obviously. You know, mm -hmm. going from 10 million to 100 million, um, it doesn't give you a 10x better model at every task, obviously. So there is some amount of diminishing returns in that regard. But there's also a bunch of other progress that we're also making. You know, we're also developing better training data. We're developing better methods of training, better recipes. You know, uh, better applications, better interfaces, better whatever. I, I think there are bottlenecks there. Um, I, I know of some that I think other people haven't even realized yet, but they don't seem like fundamental to me. They're not like like metaphysical limitations. It's just like oh, it's just engineering. Like people are just going to run into these bottlenecks and knows oh. Our model is is running out of data, or you know, oh, it does. We don't have big enough computers, or whatever. And then they're just going to solve that. It's just kind of my prediction. I'm just kind of betting on human ingenuity if, when it, when you can make money. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I think I would I would characterize you as a kind of universalist in in the sense that I think you believe that the the algorithm of intelligence should be as simple as possible. It should have a single learning objective. The intelligence should emerge from that. And one indication of a bottleneck is when lots of people say, okay, well, it looks like there's limitations here. So now I'm going to either adopt a hybrid approach or I'm going to try and 
introduce complexity into the architecture with new inductive priors. I mean, I was speaking to Sarah Hooker earlier and she was talking all about you have these noisy atypical data sets. Most of the representational capacity is wasted because, you know, like on the common cruel corpus, like most of, most of it's crap, basically. And she cites fairness problems. So, you know, they're, they're starting to introduce massive amounts of complexity in, in terms of like how we structure and sample and filter the data. And I know that you folks did that with the LOFA AI models. So um, is, do you think that's, that's like a step away from this idea of like, let's just blank slate universal simple learning algorithm? Not particularly. And I, I don't know if I would describe myself as any kind of purist in any kind of dimension. I'm, the way I think about intelligence is intelligence is a, you know, kind of a practical observational like descriptor that we put on a wide variety of systems. There's many, many ways you can design these systems. There's many, many ways these systems could be built. They can be all kinds of different kinds of jank. You know, I think it's probably possible you can hard code a AI theoretically if you had a million years, you know, just write it all down in prologue, you know, I mean, probably. Um, you know, uh, the lookup table probably doesn't work. That takes exponential time. But um, it seems pretty, uh, what I do believe is that there are algorithms that are quite simple that mm -hmm. if given sufficient compute and data can produce extremely intelligent systems. And I think these, mm -hmm. um, these algorithms, we, I think we're far from having discovered like the most optimal or the most efficient algorithms. I think like neural networks, backprop, transformers are like progress compared to like uh, earlier algorithms we had, but I don't expect this to be the limit whatsoever. I expect it to be like, you know, if aliens from outer space came and showed us their like textbook on AI, it would contain algorithms we've never heard of, you know? Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little while when, when we speak about like the rationalist conception of, of intelligence, but it, it's the least anthropocentric one. And it's one that doesn't really resemble intelligence in the way that we intuit or, or we think about things, which, which is very interesting. Yeah, I, um, I consider human brains to be an intelligence. It is a way you can build an intelligence system to a certain degree. It has certain properties, have certain you know ups and downsides. Like I, I remember I was talking to, uh, this is a bit of a schizo theory, but like I was talking to someone about like, I don't know. I don't know what the topic was. We we're talking about psychology, I think, and we we're talking about like trauma. And then one, per and whenever there's a trauma discussion on the internet, one person thinks everything is trauma, and someone else will come in and say, "Ah, oh, trauma is just a made-up concept." Hmm. And so the, where my where I come on on that is that I think actually trauma is a real concept, but only in humans. It's just as an implementation detail of how the brain processes fear, like with the amygdala, uh, which just happens to be true. But you don't. You can build an intelligence that just does not have this property. Most other intelligences, there's some properties that most intelligences will share, such as preferring some things over other things. If you don't have that, well, it doesn't really do anything, does it? So, and like an and like so, an alien probably has something that looks like fear or like dislike, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to have the concept of trauma. It doesn't have the concept. It doesn't have most of our emotions. It doesn't have to have the concept of love. It doesn't have to have the concept of anger. It could, but it doesn't have to. Some, so some of these things are like probably pretty universal, like dislike is probably pretty universal, but like all the like lots and lots of things that others are human, you know, it, you can build systems that are like that. And there's reasons that evolution built us this way and gave us these various properties, but they're not universal. And there are systems that do not have these. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just did a, a show with um, Chalmers and we spoke about um, Nagel's bat. Mm -hmm. And that's this thought experiment that, you know, we can't really understand what it is like to be a bat. Chalmers talks about this subjective experience that you're speaking about almost as being something on the side which is orthogonal actually orthogonal in, in a different way you know like in intelligent uh, systems and in, in his view they have behavior and dynamics and function 
and then you have all of this subjective stuff on the side and it's not entirely clear what we do with that and maybe that's also one of the features of the rationalist conception in, in the sense that we we almost just explicitly don't don't care about it we just kind of like say that that's on the side yeah so fundamentally i mean you know we could we could waste a lot of time talking about epiphenomenalism and quality and whatever i think these things are like amusing to get high with your friends and like pretend you're making intellectual progress but it's just not really what i fundamentally care about and like practical in the sense where like sure it's 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 fun to argue about what qualia does a bat have sure that's or you know whispering the word consciousness and you know or like uh universal love or whatever but and I, what I fundamentally care about in intelligence and what I think is practical are questions about how does it work, how does it accomplish goals, how, you know, how, do, how do motivational systems work, how, when we build such systems, how can we get them to do things that we want and not do things we don't want. Um, I'm also very interested in like, so I, I am interested in practical questions related to this list. For example, like what is pain? Or like what is suffering? And is it a, like a physical process that can be like, if I give you a blob of matter and I ask you the question, does this blob of matter currently suffer? Is this an objective question or not? This is not obvious to me. And I don't think any philosophy I've read has made good progress on this question. Mm -hmm. Like some people will say things like whatever, you know, human brain being tortured, obviously suffering. But then I'm like, okay, but like where in the atoms does that exactly happen? And this, I think, is really relevant and will be even more relevant as, you know, we get better at like, like if we simulate a human in a computer and we torture the simulation, is that morally bad, or can you do that? Because it doesn't, because it lacks the magic, you know, quality edge use. Hmm. I, yeah. pro I usually default to just like, well, it's just like not do that. Just, just to be careful, like just to be safe. How would you like not do that? And I'm skeptical of like philosophical views that say that that's fine without like a lot of further justification. But ultimately, I'm pragmatic. Like intelligence is a property about the physical world not some hypothetical thing it's not some religious concept it is a real thing that exists in the real world and the question of how it works and how it can be built and how it can be controlled and implemented and so on are questions of science and engineering not of metaphysics okay i mean i i, I see where you're coming from and, and let's both agree that the qualia the subjective component that's something that you know it's anthropomorphic but could you also argue that goals and function and capability and behavior are kind of anthropomorphic so like if you build an ai system um, it still has an objective function. Um, you know, we might discretize time in a certain way. Um, is this also us projecting our own kind of way of understanding the world into the model as well? Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's anthropomorphic in the same way quantum physics is anthropomorphic, or uh, Newtonian physics might be a better example. But quantum physics mm. works too, where there is no such thing as like gravity or forces. Like reality doesn't work that way. Reality is much weirder than that, and we can, or like objects, objects don't exist really. Like they're just an abstraction that humans use to simplify how and compress regularities we see in reality. I think of utility functions or like um, agents or whatever as similarly as useful abstractions, not truths about reality. Reality is fundamentally some kind of weird, bizarre um, dynamical system, which has substructures, which can be usefully compressed or you know approximated by talking about agents or you know optimizes with desires but fundamentally yes you're absolutely correct there is no there is no um you know ontologically primitive agent if you zoom down far enough on a human eventually you just see proteins and just atoms there's no 
magic, you know, thinking juice. It's all just emergent phenomena. It's all just higher level abstractions over very simple, you know, systems. Okay. Well, um, because because you say we could just build AI with Prolog, but it would be too, you know, high level and complex. So we say, okay, well, let's have an emergentist framework, which is higher resolution, but maybe it's still not high enough resolution. Well, I don't think that the, the reason you fail at doing it in Prolog is the like high or low level or emergentist or non-emergentist. It's more that it's, we just don't know how to do that. Like, you mm. know, it's just like, we just don't have good theories of like learning or like uh, abstractions about the world or intelligence. Like I expect if, as I said, aliens gave us the textbook from their home planet, it has like the theory of intelligence in it. I expect it, or like, you know, maybe there'll be multiple theories or whatever, but I expect there to be like some that are like pretty simple and like pretty mathematically elegant where implementing them would be not take many lines of code or like not many lines of prologue necessarily, but we just don't know how to do that because we don't have such theories. Our like learning theory and like representation theory and such is like very, very primitive compared to like what I expect like, you know, future aliens to be capable to have. This doesn't mean we can't develop this theory. I'm just saying it's just currently not the case. I don't think this is a fundamentally like unsolvable problem. And so you can kind of like, so I, I just expect that, you know, like, Prolog is like a not easy to do if you lack theory, but there's other ways of building intelligences that are much easier to do if you lack theory, such as, you know, neural networks mm -hmm. and just training on data is much, much, much easier, as we can see empirically, even if you don't actually have good theories of learning. Like you don't have to learn VC theory, you know, or like, you don't have to learn like representational theory to get your GPT to train, just throw data at it, lol, you know, mm. sure, you know, we had to like figure out backprop, we had to figure out whatever, but there's no like real theory of deep learning and like all the like current like work on theory of deep learning, which I think is very interesting, is still extremely far from what I would consider like a actual like theory of learning. Like I want a theory where I can like, I define a network architecture or whatever and a data set and I can learn what I can I predict ahead of time. What abstractions will this model learn internally? What algorithms, what circuits will be implemented internally? What will it not learn? What will it learn? And this is without running, having to run the network. And we are nowhere close to this level of theoretical understanding. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit because you, you said something interesting a while ago, which is that the, when you look at perplexity, I mean, these models are trained to do a trivial objective. Right, when you know, it might be a, a BERT type objective or a kind of, you know, um, a decoder type objective. And you could, look at, you could look at perplexity or you could look at some of the emergent capabilities. And now we're seeing a bit of a, a shift away from post hoc analysis and actually trying to white box the system as you're talking about and having some kind of dynamic training loop, which is actually looking at things other than headline metrics. And I think you've been doing some interesting kind of thinking in this space as well. I mean, maybe you can sketch that out. I have been thinking a lot about stuff like this, um, there, but just to like make a difference between what I mean when I say white box versus mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. So when I say white box, when I talk about like learning theory and such, um, these are things that I would like wish for, but I don't expect to like happen anytime soon. These mm -hmm. would be systems where we understand neural networks so completely that we can like you know decompile them into human readable code edit one specific fact or like one specific algorithm or like prove a theorem on them. We can like prove this neural network or never say a bad word to a user and we can like prove this. This is super far from where we are at the theoretically and it's also different from what you're describing which is like, you know, 
using um, you know different loops or different eval metrics and such to like you know move training around. I would still consider these to be mostly black box methods, mm. like anything that involves backprop is basically black box from my perspective. Unless you really know what you're doing, unless then I don't think we currently really know what we're doing. So we definitely have seen some, especially the data engineering dimension. We've seen a lot of people experimenting a lot more with like making specific training data sets that have certain properties or that like have users interact with a model. And then when like, a certain type of bad interaction happens, they will like fine tune it to like prevent that from happening. Or use stuff like RLHF or other methods like this. I think these are all like variously interesting, but I consider them to be as black box as any other for the most part. Like when you train a model using like say RLHF, mm -hmm. it like um, on the surface level, it might look more human. It's like you're telling the human, the model to do something the human likes. Human votes up, you tell the model to do that more. You, human votes down, tell the model to do that less. It feels in some sense we have more control, but do you actually know what the model is learning? Do you actually know what is in those gradients? Do you actually? I'm telling you, you don't. If yeah. you did, you're some alien from another planet, because currently, no one does. So we did an experiment uh, with this conjecture. Uh, there's there's some technical details I'm going to leave out from this experiment. I'm like, uh, gotcha. But the overall, the headline of the experiment is we looked at normal GPT models compared to instruct models. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought these were all HF models, but OpenAI claims they were not. These yeah, it's just... a great article, by the way. And oh. what's the name of that article? So uh, Mysteries of Mode Collapse. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I told Sarah about that earlier. Yeah, she was it, very interested. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting result. And so, so yeah, there, there, there's a little caveat that we thought these were all HF models, but turns out they were not, at least according to OpenAI. So but are, are they mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes? I mean, just the method wasn't used. They were instruct fine-tuned. Which is right. a slightly different method. So, and could, could you, I mean, do, just for the audience, could you introduce what we mean by this kind of fine tuning to align with human preferences? Sure. So, um, instruct, instruct fine tuning is a very simple method where you basically just write, you create data sets of examples where you have input and a user output like the user likes or like, and so on. And you just fine tune it to follow instructions. Mm -hmm. So, these are like very, Carefully fine crafted uh, data sets, and you just fine tune on those, just like you fine tune kind of on anything else. There's some details there, but like, yeah, doesn't matter. RLHF is a bit more fancy. This is a method where instead of just training on you know samples, you you have the model generate its own examples, like you or, or well, you give it a, you give it a task, and you have it then generate like say two different outputs. And you have humans, and you have at first you have humans rank these, mm -hmm. and then you know they they say like this one's better than this one, and this one's better than this one, this one's better than this one, and yeah. so on. And then you all, as an extra step, you then also train the model to predict what humans like. It predicts will humans like this or not, and then you train your model to optimize the chance that a human will like its outputs using RL um, rather than fine tuning. So some technical details there don't really matter. Um, the overall idea is, is that you're trying to take these pre-trained models, which are kind of just like these big blobs of like useful things, and you're trying to like tweak them towards more likely or closer to what humans want them to do. Mm -hmm. First glance seems like a great idea. You know, sounds sounds great to me. You know, you tell the model to do things humans like, thumbs up, thumbs down, great, yeah, cool. And so this is pretty tricky to do in practice, but OpenAI seems to have got some really great results results out of it. 
um, with enough labeling, enough fine tuning, enough uh, in tweaking the hyperparameters, you can make really useful models. Um, we don't know exactly like like what ChatGPT is, but I, I think, but we do know that like the text DaVinci three, I think, is an RLHF model, um, and I've heard from people that's quite good. Um, so yeah. you know, to each their own. So to go back to the mysteries of mode collapse. We saw this interesting phenomena, which, by the way, does not really happen with the newer models. So I think OpenAI fixed this problem, but we're not sure. It's very confusing. And OpenAI does not share information that freely, <laughs> um, unfortunately. We saw this interesting phenomena of mode collapse, um, which I think is actually not the necessarily the most interesting thing we observed. Or, well, it's, it's a subset of the most interesting thing. So it's a nice pose. You can go read if you want. But I think the headline result that I'd like to talk about is there's this phenomena where if you ask a raw GPT model for a random number, and you check the like probability of the various digits, it was actually pretty random, which is already kind of weird. Um, but you know, it wasn't perfect. You know, it was like, you know, it preferred like 42 a little more than other ones. But like overall, it was like it was a pretty even distribution. But then as you look to the instruct tuned models, like I think like 70% of the mass or what was like concentrated on like two or three numbers. Yeah. It had like favored numbers. And so why this is interesting to me is um, surely OpenAI didn't train them to have a favorite number. That was, of course, that wasn't an intentional thing. It wasn't that that was like something we're attempting to do. What is interesting, so my theory, what, what I expect happened here was is that they were trained for some totally different thing. They were trained for instruct training. They were trained for, you know, RLHF, whatever, right? And then in that process, there just happened to be some kind of correlation to some numbers or like some gradients just happened to push things in some certain direction. And that caused this model to suddenly change its distribution rather wildly over things that were never in the intended target. And so this is what happens. This is what I expect will happen, continue to happen when you train huge black blocks of models by just you know throwing these like massive amounts of gradients at them with like you know some samples you came up with sure it like probably will be like more polite on average these are polite samples but suddenly maybe it will start really really liking i don't know strawberries more than blueberries if you ask it and like maybe that's amusing and maybe that's harmless but it shows how little we really understand these things it shows that we really don't know what we're doing when we do these things. And it's very much empirical. And that's like fine if it's just, you know, some text models, some chatbot or something, you know. It, it, I mean, it, it can still cause problems there. But I'm particularly concerned about this as these systems become more powerful and more integrated into society, as these systems become more capable of, you know, performing independent actions and interacting with the environment, um, you know, writing code, manipulating humans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Anthropic actually recently released a paper which I have not yet read, but it looks really good. I, I skimmed it, but I haven't read it in detail. Hmm. Where they look into how, especially RLHF models, as they become larger and more trained, they become very sycophantic in the sense that they will say false things that humans like hearing. Hmm. Uh, and they get, and it's very consistent. It's, it like, as models get larger, they not become more truthful, not become more accurate. They become better at telling humans what they want to hear, which really is no surprise. Like uh, everyone I, I feel like should have predicted that ahead of time. Like if you train them to do the things humans like, they will do that, whether or not it's good. 
because this con concept of good or truthful or such is much more complicated than will humans give me thumbs up or thumbs down. So I'd like to explore this kind of paradox that in, in many ways we've nerfed the models by doing the RLHF and surely we haven't, right? Surely on many of the headline benchmarks the models are better with RLHF. I agree with you that we have made them more anthropomorphic and I was fascinated in your mode collapse articles. You were, you were basically saying that before it was there was this rich creativity to the model and when you look at the um you know like the, the probability distribution of the next token it was it was almost like you know like a packet of maltesers i mean yep. you, you never know what you're going to get and um that actually kind of if you knew what you were doing that that opened up lots of possibilities we were just speaking before about how i think folks in your community don't think that ai should be anthropocentric uh, so we've made it more anthropocentric have we nerfed it? Have we brittleized it or made it more robust? It's not clear to me what the answer is. It depends on what you mean by brittleness or robust. It, it, in the sense that, is it less likely to say something the user doesn't like? It's become more robust in that regard. You look at ChatGPT, right? You know, ask it something terrible and it's more robust than, you know, like Da Vinci was. If you ask Da Vinci to say something terrible, it's quite, quite happy to do so. And it doesn't really care. While so the interesting question, there's no universal sense in what is right or wrong. There's no universal correct goal function or incorrect goals. There's, it's all what was the user intending. Hmm. So in many ways, RLHF can, you know, to some degree, improve, you know, that like OpenAI wants their model to be politically correct. It's a goal they wanted to have. And maybe as a result of this, it will become less creative and like less good at like writing great schizophrenic, you know, massive volumes of fiction or whatever. Maybe that's a trade-off they want to make. Is it, is it possible to do both? Probably. Do we know how? I mean, as I say, we don't really have any theories. We're just kind of like, this is a purely empirical science. Like currently, machine learning is more like biology than it is like, you know, like computer science. It's... So much of it is just kind of like poking a thing, putting some chemicals in, stirring it around, seeing what happens. And we can like push things in certain directions and such. But it's not like, it's not as if someone could say, oh, okay, I, I want my model to now have this property. Like I want uh, ChatGPT, but I want it to also be really creative at writing this type of stories. And then I just like, you know, rewrite it to do that. We don't know how to do that. You can like train on some data and like hope it figures it out. And I, sometimes that works, but it's very much empirical in this regard. And so the idea of like nerfing or not really depends on what your goals are. If your goals is to have a cool schizophrenic writing aid, then yeah, the RLHF models are probably a bit worse uh, in various ways. If your goal is to have a um, you know, useful helper bot that doesn't say any naughty words, then RLHF is at least somewhat helpful. It's not a solution to the problem, as, you know, Twitter found within, you know, like 60 minutes of ChatGPT going live, you can very amusingly, you know, just like find prompts that will make the model totally ignore its its tuning there and say bad things or like things it's not supposed to talk about and such, which is very amusing. Uh, but again, just shows, um, Scott Alexander has a great post about this um, on his blog, Astral Codex 10, where he points out, which I very strongly agree with, um, this idea that, hey, maybe it's bad that the best AI lab in the entire world that tried as hard as they could can't control their AI. Like, whether you agree or disagree that, like, you know, having this kind of, like, corpo, you know, like, 
you know, mealy mouth AI is like good or bad. Isn't it kind of disturbing that the best possible lab who put massive amounts of effort in it still failed? Like the model still will happily, you know, tell you how to cook meth as long as you just like ask it to do it in like Uvu speak or whatever, right? <laughs> it's like, as long as you're like slightly tricky at it, you like put it a little bit weird, you can still get these models to do all these kind of things that OpenAI worked, you know, which is like one of the best labs in the world, with the best scientists in the world, putting millions of dollars into contractors for labeling and, you know, changing things and controlling things. And they still can't get the models to do what they want. Yeah. That seems like a problem. Let's talk a little bit about gatekeeping. <clears throat> now, there are concentric circles. So the, the folks in the ethics community, they say we should control these models from the point of view of misinformation, for example, or, you know, they might reinforce um, biases in society, et cetera, et cetera. And in a way, I was, I didn't like that argument against Galactica. I, I thought Galactica was a wonderful tool. I've done a PhD. I'm perfectly capable of verifying information myself. I don't, I don't trust everything a language model tells me. So I was, I was kind of annoyed at that form of gatekeeping, and I wonder whether you would be too. But, but in a way, you're a fan of a much bigger form of gatekeeping, which is that these models could potentially form an existential threat, and therefore we should um, restrict their, their use, or not necessarily now, but a future iteration of them. Oh, it's much worse than that. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite sentence. It's much worse than that. So like the whole misinformation thing is, I've talked to many of these misinformation people, and they're earnest people. I want to like make this clear, even if I disagree with some of these people, and like you know, also maybe politically or so whatever. For the most part, they're very earnest people. They are trying to prevent harm and are trying to do what's right, even if you disagree with them. And I you know wish that sides could just like see that most of the time each other are trying to actually just do the right thing from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> so and my reaction when I was talking to a lot of these misinformation people is I was just like, it's so much worse than all you guys think. Like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, it could generate like some like uh, spam emails. I'm like, man, that would be like harmless. You can do much worse things with these models. Like, like be a bit creative. Like, what do you think that like a sophisticated like, you know, PSYOP operation where you can just like clone virtual humans that can become friends and infiltrate communities actively. Like, what do you think that can do? Like, oh my God, like, the world isn't ready. I've I've written essays about this like three or four years ago. I wrote this mm. big bunch of essays where I was when I was first working with GPT, where I just saw the writing on the wall. I'm like, oh, the internet's going to end. <laughs> like, like you will not be able to under to to understand. You can talk to someone for years of your life. You can become mm -hmm. friends with them. They can like hold your hand through the worst parts of your life, and they were a bot the whole time. That's the brave new world we're approaching. That's the if we don't integrate like some kind of like you know widely distributed proof of humanity then that's just what the internet's going to be like. You know, catfishing on levels, you know, hitherto unknown to man. And I've been like, so it's very funny. I kind of like piss off both sides. I piss mm -hmm. off both the like hall monitor type people because I don't care enough about their like political correctness thing. Because like, I'm like, and I freak out. But then I also not, the libertarians also don't like me because I'm also like, oh yeah, oh, this is going to like, you know, be much worse. Like scammers are going to mind control everybody. And well, not literally, but like, and then I also piss off all of these people combined because I still don't think any of these problems are in the top five worst problems that AI are going to cause. Well, I mean, let's explore this a little bit because it's, it's similar to the argument of paternalism on Instagram. So, you know, you let teenage girls on there and they might be groomed and so on. But in a weird way, it has the opposite effect because it kind of, it, it 
it, it's almost like it trains teenage girls to um, be, you know, to defend themselves and, and to kind of recognise harmful situations and to put the ban. I mean, I, I can tell you, you don't agree with that, but I, it, it's a it's a weird form of paternalism and, and, and social conservatism, which is actually weird from progressive folks on, on the left, because they're saying that even now with DaVinci 3, if you have a response on LinkedIn or you get an email, you don't know that it's coming from that person. Um, in all likelihood, it may have been generated by a large language model. That We're in that reality now. And you can draw a line in the sand and you can say, no, I don't want, because it is going to change society. It's already changing society. You can say, I don't like this. I want things to stay as they, as they were. And the same people are saying, oh, um, you know, our values are changing and the models need to reflect our new values because they, they, they see society differently. So that seems like a contradiction to me. I don't care what other people think. Like if other people have stupid political opinions, then that's just not my problem. Um, and if people don't understand the technology, I think a lot of people... So what I do feel like what has happened is that there's a big, massive ball of problems coming at us. And this whole problem, this whole sphere of problems is so big that it doesn't fit into any one ideological niche cleanly. It's not, it doesn't fit into the story of the left. It doesn't fit into the story of the right. It doesn't fit into the story of the libertarians. It doesn't fit into the story of the progressives. It doesn't fit into the story of anyone really because it's like fundamentally not human. It's like mm -hmm. fundamentally just like not the kind of problems we've dealt with in the past. We have to deal with things such as like, you know, human identities not making, you know, not making sense anymore. Humans no longer being the dominant species on the planet, you know, uh, having, you know, brain uploads or like the ability to like, you know, um, produce any form of media or any kind of manipulation, the ability to, um, you know, immortality, whatever, right? Like, these are all problems that just fundamentally, it's, it's kind of like how, like, the ideologies of the Middle Ages had to give way to the ideologies of the Industrial Age. Like, mm -hmm. communism didn't make sense in the Middle Age. Like, you, you could explain it to people and it would make sense because it was dealing with problems that didn't exist. It was dealing with ontologies that didn't exist. It only started making sense when you had radio and telephone and steam engines and labor and capital and such. Like there, there wasn't really capital the same way that Marx would describe it in the Middle Ages. There, there was, but like not really, you know. And or like democracy, like didn't really make that much sense if you never moved more than a mile out of your hometown and like there was no big nations or something. Like sure, you can like always like you know find some weird version of it. But it wasn't a natural fit for the kinds of problems that a medieval servant, a peasant would face. Like ide ideologies like Marxism or fascism or democracy are like, they don't make sense. It only in the industrial and then the, and then the modern area where these kind of ideologies started like becoming relevant because they were addressing this brave new world, this new world with new problems, with new fundamental differences. And... It's often the case that you have some like progressive reactions to things. You have some like reactionary, like you know, you know, conservative reactions to these kind of things. But like, if you took a, the most conservative like person in the West today and you put them back into the Middle Ages, they would be the most radical progressive person that medieval servant a peasant has like ever met in their entire life. They would be like, "What? What do you do? Like what?" That's like they would be they would be completely incomprehensible to them. We would be aliens to them. And we're going through another one of the shifts right now, basically, is that these shifts happen because of technology. These shifts happen 
uh, because what it means to be human gets redefined. Our economic systems get redefined. Our like abilities to interact with each other get redefined. And we're going through another one of the shifts right now is that none of the stories that we have been telling ourselves over the last 100 years work in this new regime. Like, dem like democracy and like fascism and Marxism are all fundamentally based on humans. Like none of these stories are built around, okay, what if there's things that aren't humans that also can do everything? Then all, like, you know, does democracy make sense if, do, do, the, do the robots get to vote? Do the, do the AIs get to vote? Not? When? Why not? Like, you can, you can develop versions of democracy that are the a dem democratic ideology that address these problems, but it's not inherent to democracy. These new ideologies have not yet been developed. And we're, we're, you know, we're in this phase of like, you know, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. And now is the time of monsters. This is where we're currently at. And people are starting to realize this. They're starting to realize that, they're, they're, that their stories just don't quite work. And everyone's confused. And they expect this to get worse. I expect people to get more and more confused. So yeah, you know, you have like people on the left saying like misuse or whatever. And you have people on the right saying whatever people on the right say. I don't know. And then, but none of this really captures the real problem. The real problems are much weirder than that. They're much worse than that. Like, you know, you can talk about taxes and capitalism and Marxism as much as you want, but if humans just provide no more labor because all of it is done by machines, well then, you know, Marxism doesn't have an answer to that either. And neither does capitalism. None of these systems have an answer to this. So... If you really want to talk about ideology and you really want to talk about how the future is going to go, I don't know how it's going to go. And I don't think anyone currently does. I don't think any of the current stories are going to survive. There has to be some new story. There has to be some new thing. And it's going to have to happen really goddamn quick <laughs> because uh, technology is not slowing down and things are going really fast. Does it worry you? Do you think that there is a kind of linear interpolation between where we are now and where we're going? Or do you think it's going to be an extremely bumpy ride? I think it's going to be extremely bumpy. Like... There's like no world I can imagine where like the next five years aren't extremely crazy. Like if the next five years are really normal, you can like throw tomatoes at me and like call me and put a little gestures hat on me. But like there's like no way I can imagine things not being extremely crazy over the next five years. And then the five years after that are going to be even more crazy. And the five years after that are going to be even more crazy than that. Can you, can you sketch out some, some examples? I mean, you, I think you were alluding to one interesting uh, phenomenon a little while ago, which is that some, some, of the, some, of, some of the people that you interact with in the future might just be AI agents, you know, and they are in some sense indistinguishable from, from real human beings and there'll be a massive disruption of, of the workforce and, and so on. But can you, know, can you like put a bit of color into that vision just so we know what you're talking about? I mean, so I don't like doing too much futurism. And the reason I don't like to do futurism is people, people over-anchor on specific scenarios. So I can give a timeline. And then they'll find one part of the timeline where like, oh, Connor, actually, that doesn't work because of this reason you didn't know. Therefore, I dismiss all of your arguments. So there's really little for me to gain when I'm like, okay, here's 10 things. I expect eight or more of them to probably happen, but I don't know which eight. Like, that's like, that's how I think about things. I'm like, you know, 50% that like eight or more of these, I don't know which ones, turn out to be true. And then, but then, you know, someone will like nitpick some of them and then they'll ignore all the ones that do happen and so on. So I, I can do that. I can, I can give you such worlds that I think are like plausible. And also there's the, but there's also the problem that I think the truly most 
plausible worlds are too weird to be in the Overton window. Like, mm. there's this concept called future shock levels. And the idea is there's like several shock levels a person can be at. It's like how comfortable they are with like various extreme levels of like potential sci-fi futures. And the saying is usually you should never try to explain something to someone who uh, that is above that is more than one above their future shock level. If you explain something to someone that's more than one of, uh, a level above their future shock level, they'll just become confused, or they'll be scared, or they'll start worshiping you, or they'll like, or they'll like yell at you. They, it's like it becomes impossible to communicate. People can like only handle things that are like one future shock level above them. So usually, it's not productive to like talk about w what the far future will look like because it just frightens people. Yeah, and so I can give you like some prediction for next year. I think that's probably not going to be that weird. But if you ask me how things going to look in five, ten, twenty, fifty years, it's going to be weird. Yeah, because I was I was reading this book called The Rationalist Guide to the Galaxy, and it was really um, I recommend folks actually read that, talking all about the genesis of of Less Wrong and Robin Hanson and Eliezer and and uh, Bostrom and how many of these ideas uh, formed, and we'll, we'll go into some, some of the core beliefs uh, in, in a minute. But um, I think it was Eliezer who coined this future shock thing, and I think he has future shock level four, which is like the, the mind-blowing one that, that, that most people wouldn't, wouldn't understand. But um, talking about long-termism in particular, this is one thing that a lot of people take umbrage with. They say that we're talking about something that sounds like science fiction, so it, it rests on this idea of, existential risk being incredibly important and the most significant thing for humanity right now is to survive the next 100 years and the thought experiment sounds like science fiction because it's talking about for example the moral value of future simulated lives on another planet having because there's so many of them kind of like having more um moral valence than let's say people starving in africa now i mean what do you think about that so if you were hoping for a really spicy defender of long-termism, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> because I am far more practical than that. Yeah. I don't think you need any funky long-termist, Bostromian, like, simulation arguments to justify X-Risk being a problem. I'm like, if you want your kids to grow up, you want to survive this entry. <laughs> you know? That's, like, mm. as practical as it gets. Mm. Uh, like... You know, look, if I could just get my kids and your kids and, you know, all of our kids to grow up into the next century, I would be really happy about that. And I'm not even confident we're going to get to there. So, sure, I, I can, like, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for long-termism, to be clear. I think there's, like, a lot of, like, actually pretty strong philosophical arguments there. But I don't think they're... I think they're also, like, too clever for their own good. <laughs> um, this is a problem that a lot of rationalists thinking have is they're just too clever for their own good. They'll come up with these massive galaxy brain arguments, which is like add all this complexity and go through all these things and then come up with these like weird, like mostly like not really usable solutions or like ideas or something. And like, yeah, some of them I understand and it makes sense. Some of them, I also think it's fun. Like it's kind of, it's fun to read Bostrom's papers and just kind of like, go along for the ride, I enjoy it, it tickles my brain, you know, and I think he's probably right about many things. There's some things I think he's wrong about, but... What do you it, think he's wrong about? Ooh, that's a long, that's a long talk, <laughs> that's a long discretion, but about, like, the moral value of, like, um, uh, person moments, 
um, and like how to like uh, integrate those over infinite universes. So that's a that's a topic we're not going to talk about now. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, because one of the hallmarks of Bostrom is he has these thought experiments where he makes sort of like, and it's always logically impeccable, you know, like one one leap, then one leap, then one leap, each one rests on the one before. Yeah. Even with the simulation argument, it's something, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but, you know. Yeah. If, I also if, totally uh, don't buy that one. I think his argument's actually bad. I actually think that's his worst argument. Oh, interesting, because I, I, my, my conception was, and maybe I'm wrong, that much of rationalism, um, maybe not, but certainly long-termism, rests on the simulation argument, because it kind of starts with the universe is made of information, um, you know, we might already be in a simulation, or if not now, in the future, most of the living beings will be simulated human beings. Yeah. So, so why I don't know how much would differ from other rationalists in this regard, but like, whenever I, I have this like class, so like, I'm not a utilitarian, class utilitarian by any sense, and I think anyone who is a class utilitarian is insane because humans can't be utilitarians, it doesn't work, it's too hard, it's too computationally hard. Like, this is like what Eliezer talks about in his uh, essay, um, Dying with Dignity, where. He talks about this like phenomena where you talk to rationalists and then they're like, well, okay, you know, AI can destroy the world, that will cause infinite suffering, blah, 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 blah. So you must do anything possible. So let's, uh, uh, let's go blow up TSMC. Yeah. And then, uh, and I'm just, that's so dumb. <laughs> like that is so unimaginably stupid and you would actually consider that a like reasonable plan. And so my diagnosis, which I think is the same as Eliezer's, but I'm not actually sure. I haven't actually talked to him about this. So I'm not sure if he agrees with my like interpretation of his diagnosis of the problem. Like, is that what happens is is that utilitarianism is is good in theory. It is the moral theory that God should use. If you were a god alien from outer space that has brain the size of Jupiter, you should be a utilitarian because that's obviously the corrupt way to, to do things. But you're not, <laughs> and none of us are. And if you try to approximate this god algorithm of you know morality or whatever, then what happens is, is that in practice, you just galaxy brain yourself into rationalizing whatever stupid shit you were going to do anyways. But now you feel really smug about it, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, because utilitarianism is a strand of consequentialism. Are you a consequentialist? As a, I, I, okay, you're correct that consequentialism is the, is the way gods should do morality. So you're not, you are or you are not a consequentialist? Practically, no. That, the, so that's a huge surprise for me. Um, I, I kind of see consequentialism as being the core framework underpinning the rationalist. Yeah, so I mean, I would describe myself, I guess, as an aspiring consequentialist. <laughs> so I uh, wish I was a consequentialist, but I'm not stupid in the sense that if I thought I was a consequentialist, if I thought that I could actually evaluate the consequence of my actions and I act accordingly, that would be stupid because I can't. Obviously not. So for example, if I, if an alien from outer space came out of the UFO, handed me a gun, and said, here, you have to shoot your mother, otherwise I'll blow up the planet. The rational thing is not to be, well, okay, I'm going to go kill my mom. It'll be like, obviously I'm insane right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should just be like, okay, obviously I'm crazy. This is not actually happening. I am insane. You know? And so, there's like, deontolo so like deontology in the sense of having rules over like things you just like don't do mm. by default, even if they look good, is is in a sense much more sane for a human because there are just some things, some scenarios that are so weird, you can't evaluate them, so just default to your rules, your rule set. So I have a strong deontology in the sense that like, you know, an alien asked me to kill my mom, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. And, you know, if 
and you can justify this on consequentialist grounds. You can you can galaxy brain yourself into being like, well, well, actually, it's it's optimal for you to not to be consequentialist. It's, it's consequentially optimal for you not to be content. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, fine, okay, cool, but like, just like, like, just come on, nerd. Yeah, like, I mean, that's a real surprise to me. I, mean, I, I was listening to a Sam Harris podcast recently where he was talking about the FTX thing and and effective altruism and. Uh, obviously, he's a consequentialist, but he was kind of arguing that we are all consequentialists to to a degree. You know, there there are kind of grades of of consequentialism. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think grades of consequentialism is a better way to describe it, in the sense that, like, sure, ultimately, I care about good outcomes, but I don't think me doing the like you consequentialist algorithms is actually the right way for me to do that as a human. I'm like reflective in the sense that, like. So like my, my 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 real morality doesn't actually have a word. I think in philosophy, at least I'm not aware of it. It's a longer topic, but like I'm self-aware in the sense that I'm like there are scenarios over which I may not reason, so to speak. And so this my argument against the simulation argument that Bostrom makes. So Bostrom Bostrom makes this argument where like he makes these like three proposals. So I'm like, well, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then we must believe that we're likely in a simulation. I'm like, no. Absolutely not. Because for me, there's an illegal step he makes, an illegal step. And the illegal step he makes is, is reasoning about all universes. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, you can't reason over all universes. That's insane. You can't do that. You can't do a, a, a computational operation over a set that large. And if you try to do a computation over a set that large, whatever it outputs, is just some shit your priors made up. And if you then take that to believe that it has like some metaphysical value, you're just confused. You can do that for fun. You know, you can just like, you know, if you're if you're aware of what you're doing, you know, you're just making some shit up. And I mean, fine. But what I disagree with very strongly, and this is a longer topic about like um a causality and large universes and so on, is that we are computationally bounded creatures. Mm -hmm. We are we cannot reason over sufficiently large objects. And if we may do computation on these large objects, whatever comes out of them is determined not by the large object, but by our approximation. It's it's determined by our priors. It's it's a rationalization technique. So it just doesn't give it some kind of like ontologically privileged status, which I think some rationalists believe. They believe that like the simulation argument gets extra credit because mm -hmm. it's like making an argument about the larger world. But for me, it's like, no, that, that, that is an invalid reasoning. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. Well, it is, but it kind of feels <laughs> like we are flitting between describing humans and Connor and describing the universe and, 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 it, and its makeup. Well, it's just important in the sense that like, Connor knows that he can't answer this question, so he refuses to. Instead of yeah. just making some shit up, I refuse to make up an answer. I'm just like, I don't know. And it's a similar thing with like the, with the consequentialist thing. Is that like consequentialism? It's like the difference between like consequentialism and deontology is kind of like the difference between P and NP. Is like deontology can always be you know high, like this is not true. Just like you know take as a metaphor is metaphorically can always be evaluated in P time because like you know have some rules you check if the rules apply and you either do it or you don't. Consequentialism is fundamentally NP hard is that you have to actually reason about the universe. You have to reason about the consequences. You have to reason about all possible universes in which you could exist and how your effects could affect these various universes. So it fundamentally becomes an NP-hard problem. And so if you know that you are not an NP-oracle, you can't do NP-complete computations, 
and you are presented with an NP-hard problem that gives you some weird fucked up answer, my suggestion is don't do it. <laughs> but, but the reason I find this interesting is it's, it's not just the rationalists, um, folks in the ethics community as well, they say that engineers are, are crappy at doing ethics. And the underlying kind of theme here is that our software is buggy. I mean, you, you've just basically given an example of it. And that's why we need to turn off our emotive gut reactions. And we need to do things that are unintuitive to us. And, and my understanding of all of rationalism is based on this simple idea that even though you think your intuition is, is to be deontological, you should just put that to one side and say, no, we, we need to just think about this rationally. We need to think about the consequences. Yeah. And I mean, this is all fine and dandy in theory, but in practice, this, you know, ends up with people getting into very bad situations very often. Um, because, no, actually, so, sure, some of your instincts are really bad, and you should not listen to them. You know, if your instincts tell you to, you know, hurt people or something because you're angry, don't do that. It's bad. Don't do that. Um, but you have a lot of instincts that are actually really good. So, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that can happen where people have, like, they feel bad about something. They don't have a reason to feel bad about it. They just don't like it. And then sometimes people can be like, well, you're being irrational. You should just like it anyways. And my answer to that is just fuck off. <laughs> you know, if you feel uncomfortable and you don't like something, then you can just not do it. And that's okay. And you don't have to justify yourself. But it's not either or. It's both of these are terrible. You lose in both scenarios. Is it like your instincts are wrong in all kinds of different scenarios. For example, yes, you should actually donate to the most effective charities. And if you don't do that, I think you're like pretty obviously fucking up. Um, given stated preferences of most people that they want to save lives, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's like, that's an obvious thing. Like when I donate money, I donate to one, not to ones that like make me like feel nice and fuzzy or whatever. I donate to ones that just, you know, save the most lives per dollar. That's just what I do. But it's not in, but the mistake that rationalists, I think, make sometimes, this is not, to be clear, not all of them. Yeah, not a monolithic group. Yes, yeah. not a monolithic group at all. And that, that sometimes happens is that people think that it gives this, that like this type of evidence, this type of thinking is like infallible or has like privileged ontological status mm -hmm. and has some amount of, uh, of privilege in its ontological status, not infinitely so. Mm. It's still an algorithm running on human software. And if you, and you can absolutely justify anything to yourself with consequentialism if you're clever enough. And many people who are consequentials are very clever. So they can justify anything to themselves. Yeah, and I mean, I think we, we've seen that recently. There was actually um, a Twitter post I saw, which is that ironically, FTX didn't um, consider the consequence of the the exchange going down in, in, in the way it did. I mean, we, we... I mean that guy in, a, in a, one of the one of the interviews, he said he said he would just like he would just bite the bullet on the St. Petersburg paradox, which is just the most galaxy brain fucking shit I've ever heard in my life. Exactly, <laughs> but I mean, but to, to sum up this little segment a little bit, it, it sounds like you're saying if you are in God mode and you actually because what we're talking about is taking trajectories through an exponential space, and humans are fallible and can't do that. So if we if we were in God mode, then then we would be consequentialists. Yeah, and of also if I think you would agree that the conception of AI from rationalists is a consequential one because it's all about this, um, you know, basically having a utility function, having um, you know, maximizing the let's say the reward, the discounted reward over that trajectory. So it would be a consequentialist agent. So 
there's a lot of subtlety in that issue that usually doesn't get brought up. So you're correct that this is the this is the TLDR version, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of subtlety actually in the. So this is the version you'd hear from I think also from like many rationalists, but this is not the version you would hear if you like sat down with Eliezer for like a long time. He oh, would give you a much more complex, nuanced version, or he wouldn't because he wouldn't you know he wouldn't care to. But hypothetically, if he took the time, he would give you a way more nuanced version of this. So there is like, um, there's a great post by Eliezer. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was something like um, consistent preferences implies consistent utilities, nah, something like that. I remember. It's like, it's the idea that coherence theorems are actually way simpler and more natural than people think they are. So a lot of the like ideas of like the Miri rationalist type thinking of intelligence comes from coherence theorems and from like Dutch booking. Um, so Dutch booking is the idea is that if an agent is incoherent in certain ways, you can extract infinite resources from it. So if an agent, for example, prefers, you know, uh, B to A and it prefers C to B and it prefers A to C, and you then you can offer it to trade A to B to C to A to B to C to A, et cetera, infinitely, and you can get infinite money out of it. Yeah, so, I think we spoke about this on yeah. the first one. Yeah. So I think you and me would agree that a super intelligence would probably not be like that. It'd probably not have that. Or at least it wouldn't have a computationally approximatable version of this. Mm. So this brings us into stuff like logical inductors, where I do actually expect that, for example, humans definitely are like this. Like You can definitely do this to humans, but it's so tricky in practice like that you just it doesn't work in practice. But like a super intelligence could trick you like this. They could do some super galaxy brain, super complicated scheme that goes through 17,000 intermediate states or whatever that humans just lose track of, and then we could get tricked. So mm-hmm. I don't think that humans are, are like immune to Dutch book, but we're like robust enough against Dutch booking that like mostly other people can't Dutch book us. And that's like fine, because we don't deal with super intelligences. We deal with other humans. Most other humans can't Dutch book us. But like, for example, mentally handicapped people sometimes can be Dutch booked in this way. Like even yeah. these very simple ways, like mentally handicapped people often do have these problems. Hmm. I read a terrible Twitter thread the other day about how mentally handicapped people are targeted by like scams and like automated like like robo scams and stuff, and it's just really heartbreaking. It's really 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 terrible. Um, and so the conception of like these systems is like consequentialist or like whatever is basically found in these coherence theorems. Is if you're in an if you're in an environment, a competitive environment, where you have to be as smart as possible, there are certain properties you just have to have because otherwise, a smarter thing just destroys you because it's just smarter than you. And the idea, and so consequentialism is kind of like a side effect of that, where you have to have coherent utilities. Like you have to have some things you like in coherent ways. If your utilities are random, then a smarter thing can just dutch book you. If your preferences are, are coherent or they're inconsistent, you can be Dutch booked. If you can be, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you are the only smart thing on the planet, you can do whatever the hell you want. Like, you will not be as, mo- as efficient as you could be. You would be more efficient if you made yourself more coherent, but you can be coherent if you want. If you're powerful enough, you can buy incoherence. Hmm. So, incoherence always will give up power. It will always make you less effective at what you're trying to do. You'll waste resources you wouldn't have otherwise wasted. You'll, be exploitable by other intelligent agents, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're smart or powerful enough, then yeah, it doesn't matter, you know? Or if you're not, de- there's no hyper predators out there that, you know, 
will Dutch book you because you know you're the only thing in the universe, then yeah, sure, fine, doesn't matter. So I think the argument that like all all things being equal, we should expect very powerful and very intelligent systems to be more coherent, to be better probability, you know, to use like something something Bayes, you know. I think those are all like pretty fair assumptions to make. I don't expect it will literally be exactly like this. And like even the yeah. biggest super intelligence still can't solve NP-hard problems. So it still can't do full consequentialism. Of course not. Yeah, and interesting. I spoke at, I spoke to some folks at Neurips about, you know, how they felt about the rationalist community. And you know, just just to be frank, some people think there is a kind of cultic um, of aspect course. to it. I mean there is. And well, there there, there is. I mean, you, you said it yourself, but one of the things that comes out, even in this conversation, is the, I mean, first of all, the average IQ is very high in this community. The amount of technical jargon renders it extremely inaccessible. I mean, just now we've been talking about Dutch booking and, you know, like lots of Bayesian references. And when we're talking about all the Bostrom stuff, it's instrumental convergence and the orthogonality th uh, thesis. And it's all very, very intellectual. And every single um, new piece of jargon depends on the one that came before. So it feels like to even kind of understand what the fuck you're talking about, there's like 14 intellectual leaps that you need to make. And from an outside perspective, it makes the community feel very cliquey. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why there's a little bit of, you know, friction, shall we say? Of course. I mean, like... <laughs> Rationalism is like the most autistic community possible. Like, I think people just like don't realize this. Like, what do you think giga autist, you know, high IQ nerds are like if you put them together in a room? This is just what they're like. And I have a lot of problems with these things as well. Like, I don't consider myself a rationalist. And why not? I, I mean, for, for the reasons we've been speaking about. Many of the reasons being also just I just fit in. I'm just yeah. not that autistic. Like, I genuinely am just not that autistic. And like. I went to like rationalist workshops and it was like the worst experience of my life. Everyone was like super nice. You know, no one did anything wrong. Everyone was like super open and trying to help and stuff. But I was just like, oh my God, I want to fucking kill myself. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> uh, why is no one normal? Like, can I talk yeah. to anyone? And they were all like, no one did anything wrong. It's just, I think a lot of people don't actually have a lot of experience dealing with like actually autistic people, like like very autistic people. Mm -hmm. And so they see they only meet them online, basically. I think a lot of people don't have much experience dealing with autistic people in real life, or when they do, they don't model them as like neuroatypical. They model them as like, oh, this guy's just an asshole, or he's just so he's just kind of weirdo or whatever. They don't really have a good mechanistic model of like how neuroatypical people are different from mm -hmm. moral people. Mm -hmm. And like once I had this model, I was just like, oh, okay. You know, this is just a different culture. It's just... I think there's a lot of nice things about it. It's very blunt. It's very honest. It's uh, very intellectual. People are very genuine in very you know endearing ways. There's a lot of things I really, really, truly, truly love about the rationalist movement and the people involved in it. But there's also lots of problems. Also, lots of things about them that really annoy the hell out of me. They're you know, and they can be like very abrasive. And it can be. It's very funny when I talk to people about like uh, alignment and like stuff like that. The number one thing that determines whether this is going to be a good conversation or not is whether they have heard of rationalists or not. Because if they have, it's going to be bad. I'm like, oh <laughs> no, how do I explain this? So I actually don't really like talking about rationalism very much. I don't like yeah. talking about that's wrong very much. Even so, I like these people and I work with a lot of these people. But the problems of existential risk, alignment, AI, 
are completely independent of this. Like it's mm -hmm. just this is just the community that happens to have discovered this problem first. This is the community that happens to have focused the most on this problem. I think it's not a coincidence that the you know the blunt autistic high IQ community would f hyper focus on very important problems. I I mm -hmm. think you know if AI risk wouldn't be a problem, they wouldn't have discovered they would have discovered like you know nuclear power or like climate change or whatever you know very early on. Like, you know, the rationalists had, like, so funny story, rationalists actually did exist technically before around World War I. Um, so there is a, a Polish nobleman named Alfred Krzyzewski, mm. who, uh, after seeing the horrors of World War I, thought that as technology keeps improving, while wisdom's not improving, then the world will end and all humans will be eradicated. Mm. So we must focus on pr producing human rationality in order to prevent this existential catastrophe. This is a real person mm. who really lived. And he actually sat down for like 10 years to like figure out how to like solve all human rationality. God bless his autistic soul. You know, he failed obviously, but you know, you can see that the idea is not new in this regard. I know, but there's this interesting paradox. I mean, Sam Harris, um, a lot of people have gone off him recently because he has you know, they, they cite Trump derangement syndrome and um, he was very, very paternalistic over the, the COVID fiasco. And he, I think he actually gave an example on his show of like, you know, look, the, the here's an example. The meteor is coming towards the planet and I can see the meteor. Other people can't see the meteor. The, the meteor. So you need to listen to what I'm saying. And so, so there's that. There's this one. Well, may, maybe actually we do need to listen. But then on, on the other hand, as you were just alluding to, it's possible that there's a kind of tunnel vision or almost um, path, you know, pathology uh, going on here, which is weirdly making them not rational. No, of course. You should never believe an argument on authority alone. And like, obviously so. Like, the whole thing is that the existential risk argument should not be complicated. If you need an authority figure to, to believe it, I think you're the rational one. It's a very simple argument. The data is not, the thinking is not dependent on Oh, Eliezer said it, or Bostrom said it, or Stuart Russell said it, or whatever. I actually really, I mean, of course, in practice it is, because a lot of people do form their opinions this way. This mm -hmm. is why a lot of people try to get, you know, more academics and such to publicly acknowledge the problem. Mm -hmm. And in practice, this is a lot of how the problem will actually be addressed, because humans like their authority and their status and so on. But really, the arguments aren't that hard. Like, I really just like how, like, ideas such as the thoracanality thesis or stimulant convergence are like seen as these weird complex philosophical points because I do not consider them to be complicated at all. I think they'll be obvious. Okay. Like instrument of convergence just, hey, you need resources to do things, right? Yeah. So if you build a thing that's trying to do things, yeah, it will try to get resources. Yeah. That's the argument. There you go. You've understood post-Roman philosophy. Congratulations. That's it. <laughs> Let's talk about alignment. First of all, I mean, maybe you should start by sketching out because you've been on this unbelievable journey since we spoke last time um, on, on the podcast. You're now the CEO of Conjecture and your mission is alignment, although you are doing some other stuff on, on the side because it's, it's a business. So why don't we start with that and how hard is alignment? Those are great questions. Uh, always my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> so alignment, so my favorite different people, define the word alignment differently. Um, and I like the definition, which is alignment is the, the, the field of study to solve the problem that 
turning that makes it so that turning on an advanced AI is a good idea rather than a bad idea. I like this very blunt, pragmatic definition. It is hmm. everything that needs to be done so that if you click the run button on a super intelligence, a good thing happens and not a bad thing. And so, of course, this leads to more specific things. So, for example, Eliezer has now um, stopped calling it AI alignment. He now ca calls it AI not kill everyone-ism. <laughs> 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 to focus on, it's not about... It's not about any specific like thing or like or like specific direction or vision of how it has to look or like how it's just like can we get the things to do anything good at all that is not immediately obviously terribly bad. So, and the part of the alignment question and like the like field is of course is assumption that by default things will not go well is that or at least that there are many many systems that if you do run them it would be really bad. So, one of the like you know. Step zero of like alignment is kind of like just like none of us and like would ever think that every intelligence is naturally good. I think this is a thing like everyone will agree with. Like at least hypothetically, you could always build a bad AGI that does bad things or that uh, harms people or whatever. The next question is how likely are these to happen in practice? Because like you know, surely no one would want to build AI that hurts people, right? So then you have to talk about things such as instrumental convergence, which is just the observation that if you tell a system, a powerful intelligence system, to accomplish a goal, any goal, it very often will require some amount of resources. It will require money or computer or energy or friends or political influence, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it will try to accomplish that, uh, to acquire those. So, you know, a, what, another one of those is potentially self-preservation, is mm -hmm. that, you know, if I tell my robot to fetch me coffee, and then I try to turn the robot off. Well, the robot will then simply reason, if I'm shut off, I cannot bring you coffee. Therefore, you may not shut me down. Can I push back on, the, on that time? So, so yeah, there are two very important concepts in this line of reasoning. So there's the orthogonality thesis, which is this idea that um, a very, I don't know, like a, a very intelligent AI might be solely focused on the pursuit of something trivial. And, and then there's this idea of instrumental convergence, as you're saying, I think there's the famous example of the cauldron and in the pursuit of filling up the cauldron to precisely the same level, um, the AI might be worried about being turned off. So, you know, let, let's kill the, the person who runs the cauldron room or something like that. And my intuition is that if, if it were actually intelligent, it wouldn't, you know, would it not realize that, oh, this thing I'm doing is really stupid? Why do you have sex? It's really stupid. I mean, it's a good question. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've uh, you've really got me there. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that um, Jordan Peterson interview with um, Kathy Newman? Yeah. When she was absolutely dumbfounded. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this yeah. is what it feels like from the inside to have arbitrary goals. Is that you like things and they feel correct. They feel like good because they feel like things mm. you're trying to accomplish. This yeah. is what it feels like from the inside to be an agent who's optimizing for some goals. The orthogonality thesis just says like, you know, you know, some humans like sex with women, some humans like sex with men. Mm. And that's or completely orthogonal. And they could also like, I don't know, feet or whatever, right? You know, it's like, we already see this in humans. You just like go on a fucking porn website. You see orthogonality, it's all its glory, you know? <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm yeah. obviously joking, but like, you know, it's a good metaphor in the sense that yeah. humans yeah. already have, you know, not a full orthogonality. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that, you know, no human will actually want some like 
bizarre thing, whatever. Even so, yeah. some very some very artistic people have some very weird interests. But yeah. it's it's fundamentally it's trying to separate the idea of the optimization of the intelligence from the goal. Is that a a powerful optimizer can do whatever. It's it's not convergent. It's not like all people end up agreeing that, oh, actually, women are beautiful and men. Like, no, no, like some people like men and some people like women. And that's just how it is. There's no right or wrong. It's just a preference. And similarly, there is an AI might just have preferences. It might just like things being blue. And then it just wants to paint everything blue. And another AI might want to paint everything green. And there's and those AIs might meet each other and they might have a philosophical debate for a trillion years but they're never going to agree because, you know, one of them likes green, one of them likes blue. There are things that are less um, less arbitrary. So it's like kind of like what we talked about a little bit about like, like Dutch picking and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Is that those two AIs, if they want to win, they do have to do a lot of things. They have to gain power. They have to like gather resources. They have to be, in, in, you know, non-hackable. They have to be consistent. They have to, you know, do probability well. They have to, you know, they have to do all these things. Those are like non-optional in the sense mm -hmm. that they are optional if you're the most powerful. But if you're not, if, you, if the green and the blue you know, AGI are fighting each other, they're going to be forced to become more coherent and more powerful and more intelligent because otherwise the other ones are going to fight them out. Okay, but, but to summarize a little bit, AI alignment is really, really hard because in the cauldron example, we spoke about this last time, so we won't go over it again, but um, the reward function would just become more and more and more complex because you'd be saying, oh, oh, and you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. Yeah, right? so, yeah, that's and, one, one and, of the yeah, Exactly, and, and you were also saying it's a little bit like we can't really test this. I mean, yeah, we can test it and we can think about it, but it's only really when we launch the thing that we find out, and just like a rocket, it might explode and, and cause a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, so the, those are those are the core of why it's hard. Yeah. So at the core of why it's hard, I think so. I think it's really important to make clear that I do not think it's an unsolvable problem. There's nothing in the laws of physics that prevents humans from just building an AGI that does exactly what we want, that you know builds a beautiful utopia, whatever, and we just click a button and we just lean back and like, okay, we did it, boys. There's nothing, no reason we can't do that. The question is just whether we will actually do it, because it's an actually hard problem. Mm -hmm. So. There's many ways in which the problem is hard. Like the ones you just described are, are, are two great points. As the one is just currently, we just don't know how to do it even in theory. Like we don't know how to write a reward function or how to write a system that can like do arbitrary complex things. You know, things that are more complicated than what humans can do. And then, but then we'll still like let itself be shut down or, you know, will not harm humans or whatever. Because we, it's a problem of consequentialism again. It's like, how do you, how do you build a consequentialist that like upheld these like super complicated properties? How do you convey this, especially with neural networks, right? Like, God forbid, like, you know, no one knows how these things work. Like, I give you an RL system. I say, hey, make this RL system, please uh, never, you know, never touch blue objects. And you're like, I don't, what? How do I even do that? Like, I can train it on some data, sure, but like, will that like convince it? I don't know. And then there's the rocket problem, as you described, in the sense that if we build a very, 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 very powerful AI system, very, very powerful optimizers, and we get it wrong even once, that might be it. Okay, but then we get to this thing that the exciting thing about AI as it is now is that it's emergentist, it's learning. But you look at a lot of um, reinforcement learning systems from DeepMind and so on, there's an incredible amount of reward hacking going on. So it's almost like we're go-fi people again when we talk about alignment and we talk about reward shaping and, and all of this kind of stuff. 
which seems disappointing. I mean, I did actually speak with Pedro Domingos the other day and he was saying that, oh, you know, we're not, don't be silly, Tim. We're not going to have like one utility function or whatever. We're going to have um, uh, a panoply of functions and we're going to meta learn them. Um, I mean, what do you think? I mean, yeah, in practice, I expect that's what it's going to look like as well. To be clear, when I talk about utility function, I usually mean it as a metaphor. I don't mean there's literally a line of Python code that determines what the thing does. That also runs into something called the pointers problem, which we can talk about in a second. Um, it's probably going to be a learned utility function of some kind. That's kind of what RLHF is. RLHF is a learned utility function hmm. in that you have a learner, a reward model, which learns from examples some hypothetical function which you don't know how to write, which includes what humans want GPT output to look like. And then you optimize for that function. And this can run into many problems if, if it wasn't obvious. The biggest problem with, there's like two big problems with this. The obvious one is just, why the fuck do you expect that thing to learn what you want it to learn? Like, like you don't know what it learned. It learned something. You know, and maybe it like on distribution looks like what what you want, but off auto distribution, who knows? As you saw, they, I talked about like the mode collapse uh, stuff, where you train the you train your model on like some like human preference data, and suddenly it thinks numbers should work differently. And, like that's obviously not what you wanted it to do, but it is what it learned. And how would you know? Because our theory and our ability to understand and interpret these neural networks is so terrible. It's yeah. not just that we can't understand the policy. We also can't understand the reward function. So we're adding more black boxes now into the system. So if anything, it's gotten worse. Yeah. So and, what do we do? And that is an excellent question. If I had an answer, I would be <laughs> a very happy man today. The truth of the matter is, is that I don't know. But I have some guesses. I have some directions of, wh of what to go, where to go and what okay. to do. So it's importantly, again, I think this is a solvable problem. I've talked a lot about like theory. I've talked about like understanding of like constructing things from scratch or like understanding things and or like de decompiling neural network stuff. I think these are all promising directions. So if I could like push any prospective viewer into one direction of research, it would be mechanistic interpretability. And this is kind of like a subfield of like interpretability in neural networks that's like focused in particular on like reverse engineering circuits, like really understanding what things do internally, being able to like, you know, re-implement them from scratch or like edit them, like stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, could I um, drill into that a little bit? So, I mean, I'm interested in, in interpretability, but we can't even interpret an eight node neural network or a tiny decision. I mean, you know, like a, an ensemble of decision trees. It's unintelligible, right? It's beyond our cognitive horizon. And that's why whenever we reason about intelligence, for example, we always look at behavior. In fact, it's the same thing with software testing frameworks now. How do unit tests work? They test behavior. We, we, you know, we, we don't care about what happens. I mean, you know, maybe we do a little bit, but, but it's always behavior. So how do you get past that limit of, of our cognitive horizon? Yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's a good question. And there's part of that I agree with and part of that I don't agree with. <clears throat> so Chris Ola, for example, and his group have reverse engineered like basically all of InceptionNet and like, or like a large part of the InceptionNet. And you can just look at the filters. You can look exactly, oh, this is a dog detector. And you just you look at it, it's just a dog. Some of them, we, we don't know. Like 30% of the neurons were still like, I don't know what to do. And, and if you remove them, the thing breaks. So obviously they do something. But like there is a significant amount where like, ah, these neurons here form a circle detector. 
It's like you can directly follow the algorithm. You can even remove the neurons, rewrite them in Python, and then like insert that Python program where those neurons are, and the network keeps working. So. Okay, but but on on that, so, so the same thing. So in in intelligence, people have a, a functionalist conception. So they say, I'm going to take a complex thing, I'm going to reduce it down to functions. So it does planning, it does reasoning, it does perception. And and similarly, you can take a neural network and you can take a slice, and you and you can kind of draw a boundary around this. It's you know, if you look at um at the human brain, for example, you've probably seen the schematic of the visual system and V1 and V2 and so on. And that's a really low resolution understanding. It it does so much more than that. Sure. I'm not saying that understanding one circuit is sufficient. Obviously, the way you have to push for it is you have to understand the whole thing. Is that you have to, at some point, you have to uh, or understand enough about it that you can put bounds on things, that you can put understanding on things. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe you can say, okay, um, I have no freaking clue what happens if, if it goes out of this distribution. But in this distribution, I can promise it will never output class 100. Something like that. Like that is a useful property. Another important thing. Well, just just on that, because that's very similar with um, when we talk about reasoning in, in neural networks. We we again we we test for behavior, but we test on on a huge amount of examples, and it seems to extrapolate outside of the training support. So we kind of say, okay, well, I, I believe that this thing's going to work robustly. And is it the same thing as saying, okay, I've developed this framework of understanding, so this circuit does this. And now I believe it will behave in this way all of the time. And is that, is that too much of a jump? So the difference is empiricism versus theory. Yeah. Is like, okay, um, this, for example, statements are infinite primes. is not a statement that is empirical. It is a statement we make because of theoretical grounds. The way we define numbers, we can make a proof that proves that there are infinite uh, primes. So I, I now have a guarantee about the out-of-distribution behavior of my prime function. I know it will always find more primes. So this is an interesting property. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, of course, a very elegant example. This is not how I expect this will work in practice with like, neural networks. I don't expect in practice we're going to use like, proof checkers on neural networks. It's not how it's going to work in practice. It's going to be like probabilistic. It's going to be like messy. It's going to be like whatever. But I think, I think people are kind of like, some people, um, kind of like give up before even trying. Hmm. Like I feel like some people are like, um, will we'll just like throw their hands up in the air and be like, oh, this is obviously impossible. I'm not even gonna try. And I'm like, man, like at least give it a shot. Come on. And like every time I try to like understand like these systems, I'm surprised by how much signal you can find, how much you can be like, oh, okay, I can actually understand how that thing's implemented. Or like, oh, okay, I can see what it's doing here. I don't fully understand it, but like, you know, 80% of it, I'm like, hmm, okay, is doing this kind of operation. And where I hope this will lead in the long term also is that we can also then use this kind of knowledge, this understanding of how these systems do things to build systems that are cleaner. So I think alignment in the gen most general sense is definitely impossible. If an alien comes out from outer space and hands you a USB drive with AGI.exe, do not run it. <laughs> don't. Don't matter how much analysis you do on it, don't matter how much you, you know, scan it for viruses or whatever, don't run it. An alien built it. Who knows what's in that thing? It's like, of course, a smart alien can always trick you. So if you just have a random AGI from somewhere, yeah, I don't think that's alignable. I don't think you can align an arbitrary AI. But what I do, the reason I think we can succeed at this problem is we get to build the AI. We get to actually construct things. We get to pick the training data. We get to trick the, pick the algorithms. We get to pick the architecture. We get to pick all these different parameters. And I think where we should, where I'm most hopeful 
like if I envision a good future where we like build a great AI that does what we want it to do, the way they expect it to go is, is that in the future, well, the way we do like training, the way we do like building is not just lol them out, you take a neural network and throw a bunch of data at it and you just like hope it generalizes, but more like you have like a much finer understanding of like what did it do, what order does it learn it, like you like factor out parts of the network or you like you like you like may put like do like unit tests on like subparts circuits or whatever, or you like import things that you already like know about or like I don't know, something like that. But we use some new methods that haven't yet been developed. I don't know what these methods will look like in practice that allow us to build clean things where we can just way more understand, ah, okay, here it's doing this. And I understand this sufficiently theoretically well that I'm not going to be surprised by what happens. Yeah, I, I like this idea of building cleaner neural networks. I mean, there was a great video by Grant Sanderson recently where he was talking about some, um, some fractal pattern um, in, in, in some area of mathematics. And he kind of visualized it and it had all of these, you know, like the boundary of chaos. And it seemed actually very regular, but there were like these weird regions of irregularity in it. and you could zoom in on it and in on it and, and it would just just become more and more weird on, on the boundary. And I, I think the, um, uh, the, the concept of a cellular automaton is quite a good way to think about this. So that's kind of how we train neural networks. They're emergentists. So we, we are nudging the thing in a lower level domain and you get all of this emergent complexity. And yes, we can change the lower level rules to regularize the emergent domain, but there'll still be all of these weird boundaries in all of these regions that we can't possibly test because the space is too large. So like, I guess like this just feels like that's the reason for my skepticism. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, to be clear, if we do this by default, I don't expect this to work. I, I, I totally expect that the default methods we will by default use to build these systems will be completely uninterpretable and like way too complicated. And we'll, I, well, or rather, I will expect we're going to interpret like 80% of them and be like, well, 20% is probably fine, and it's not fine. Like, the 20% like, uh, will contain, like, all the crazy superintelligence, but it's going to look like noise. I expect, like, I expect if I showed you an AGI from the future and you looked at the weights, like, most of it would look like noise to you. You'd be like, I don't know why I need to, what this does. And then if you, like, turn it off for some reason, everything breaks. Like, you know, just, like, change one weight slightly and, or, and, or something. You remove the high-frequency noise and suddenly everything stops working. And, but I don't think this is necessary. I don't think you have to build AGI this way. I think this is a way it can go. But I think there are ways to build these systems that where you just avoid these chaotic properties or you bound them in some way or you like, you like limit their influence on things. You limit the coupling. You limit the whatever. Again, these are methods that are not, I'm making a prediction. I'm making a prediction about a future field of science that basically hasn't even been started yet. Would you entertain the possibility that the the kind of the, the chaotic nature is somehow um, a necessary condition for AGI? So there is a part that is actually necessary, like obviously so, like obviously, obviously so, which is that any sufficiently intelligent system has to be coupled with the environment and the environment isn't chaotic. Yeah. So obviously a sufficiently intelligent system must be uninterpretable. It has to be. Because if you could interpret it, it would mean you understand more about reality than you actually do. So actually doing interpretability on a very powerful system will not just be understanding the network, it would also be understanding the environment. So if you have an AGI that's interacting with the outside world, you also have to have a really good theory of physics. You have to have a really good theory about, of optics and sociology and everything it interacts with. You know, if you have a system that interacts with the economy, 
you know, that like trade the stock market, you have to understand the stock market to understand the system interacting with it because, you know, it's a part of the whole dynamic system. Right. So, but isn't isn't that the problem? So um, a lot of, um, by the way, you know, the, 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 the rationalists in philosophy, so the different types of different type of rationalists, like Thomas Nagel and Noam Chomsky, we spoke to Chomsky. He said that many things in the world are just beyond our cognitive horizon. He, he gives the example of the prime number maze, uh, you know, which rats can't solve because rats just don't have the cognitive ability to do that. No one understands economics, right? Yep. And uh, Chomsky says that physicists are meter readers and um, he, he cites physics as being almost like this very reductionist view of a much more complex reality. And we just kind of take observables and, and we create intelligible theories to understand the world that we live in. So isn't, isn't that cognitive horizon going to stop us from building interpretable AI? If we, in one shot, build systems that are so far beyond cognitive horizon, can't understand them, and then we turn them on, we die. Obviously. If we... Can we build systems that are 0.5 or 1.5 cognitive horizons, and we just develop much, much better theories to understand them? Now, that's, more an in that's a more interesting question. And if we have a 1.5 system, can we use it to build a 2.5 system? And if we have a 2.5 system, can we use that to build a 5 system? And if we have a 5 system, can it understand a 10 system? I don't have an answer to this question, but it doesn't seem obviously impossible to me. It seems obviously probably possible that if you just get a 1,000x AGI draws from the sky, you're, you're screwed. You can't understand this thing. It's, you will never understand this thing. We will never, ever understand this thing. And if we turn it on, that's it. And we're game over. But if we build a much more... That's why, I'm, that's why I'm focusing on this, like, we get to build the AI. This, so this is a common conversation I have with people. Where people are like, "Wow, Connor, why aren't you like happy about like scaling laws? It makes like until like predictable." I'm like, "No, no, it doesn't at all. It's it's we don't know how to predict how smart AIs are. This is a big problem with the line problem is hard. Is people sometimes will be like, "Oh, it's fine. We'll just wait until it's like just below danger and then we'll stop." And I'm like, first of all, lol. Imagine corporations just stopping. B how do you know you're just one step away from the bad thing before it's already too late? How would you know? And sometimes people like, you know, hand wave something's on the scaling laws. I'm like, okay, at which loss does it become super intelligent? Like, please show me the number. Like, no, of course not. That's very silly. It's the ability to predict how powerful a system will be is dependent not only on the agent you're studying, but also on its environment. So you also have to have a very, very strong theory about the environment interacting with. And because the environment is the universe, and we don't have super strong predictive theories of the entire universe, we can't predict this kind of stuff. And this is why I, this is at the core of why I think this is hard. I think if we could all agree to just like slow the fuck down, let's just like go only like teeny micro steps until we've like developed as much theory as humanly possible. And then we take one more micro step, and then we develop as much theory as humanly possible, and we take one more micro step. Yeah, I think we'd be fine. Probably. Maybe not. You know, maybe one of those micro steps still kills us, but it's like possible. But like currently, we're not even trying. Like currently, we're just like, let's just make as big a steps as possible, as often and as fast as possible, and just see what happens, lol. Yeah, it's really interesting because, um, in a way, you're, you're like a mystery to me because you are very bullish and, and accept I mean, you're worried about the future, but you're very accepting of the 
the technology revolution that that's going to happen over the next few years. And I guess like my, my skepticism is having just done a show on Cell, for example, I know you don't agree with Cell, but he makes an argument that agency and intentionality are very important. And he actually thinks biology is, is required. But when I spoke to Pedro Domingos about this, he said, no, Tim, that's ridiculous. It's like, you know, you, you have a grain of sand and it turns into a pearl. So you have the starting conditions. And I guess you might argue that AI becomes really dangerous when you have this reflexivity. So now it's going to the internet, it can compile code, it can run programs, it can interact, it can improve itself and all, and all the rest of it. So I guess like the question to you is, what do you think are the most dangerous steps? Maybe you don't want to talk about this. You don't want to talk about this. Yeah. If I knew I, how I to imagine. build, yeah. if I knew how to build a dangerous AGI, I would not tell you. And presumably you do. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So we haven't really spoken about your your journey at Conjecture. Maybe we should do that now. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So Conjecture is the company me and my two co-founders founded earlier this year. We kind of officially kind of really got started going in March. And so we're still pretty young. Conjecture grew a lot out of Eleuther AI, which is, you know, the open source collective I, I used to be one of the co-founders of for a long time. Great experience there. But ultimately, I started to run into some bottlenecks with Eleuther AI. You know, I love doing work in Eleuther AI. We do a lot of cool projects and such. But at some point, you know, working in Eleuther AI, and uh, was kind of like, imagine you were herding cats, but the cats also were the smartest people you've ever met and had crippling ADHD. That's what we're working at Luther AI was, which is you know, a lovely experience, but also if you ever want to get anything done, it was, it was a pain. So turns out at some point, if you want to actually get people to do things, especially boring things, you have to pay them. <laughs> so around comes conjecture. So we raised some initial money. So Conjecture is a for-profit company. Do you mind saying how much? Um, I think the initial round was like 11 or 12 million. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was a pretty big round. And thank you so yeah. much to all of our uh, lovely investors who really took a, a weird bet on us. Um, so it was, a, it was a really unusual bet, I, I think, for because you know, I'm not sure if our investors you know, full, fully buy the alignment thing, but they buy some of it. So uh, well, they buy some, so could you expand on that? They buy some of it. I think they're more, they're just not as sure as I am. So I've talked to like uh, Nat Friedman, who's our main investor. I've talked to him many times about this topic. And yeah. I think there's, I think we're, we agree on many things. We're not uncertain about other things. I think more and more, I believe the tech world's coming around to my point of view, which, um, you know, is not a surprise. In, interesting. So I recognize Nat Friedman. Are there any other names I would recognize? Carlson Brothers, um, Daniel yeah. Gross. Those are like the main biggest investors. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, very, very, very thankful for them taking a taking a risk on us, and you know it's been a great time, great time so far. All all these people, by the way, really wonderful people, really really smart people. It's been a real pleasure working with them. Yeah. So it's very unusual because it's not the usual crowd you'd get like alignment funding from, uh, which is you know because these are not rationalists. These are not rationalists. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe maybe we we could explore that, but also we could explore. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, your your. You're you're just a guy. You're you're very similar to me. You're very honest. You're very technical, and you've been thrust into being the CEO position, basically of of this of this enterprise. Yeah. And I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been. It's it's very true in the sense that this is the hardest I've ever worked in my life. This is the hardest job I've ever had. I've never been challenged this much in my life. It's there's been you know. People, I remember 
It's very funny. Before I started this, I would sometimes see like people, CEOs on, on Twitter, you know, was talking about all oh, they have these, you know, ADR work, work, and I was always like, I always thought they were lying. I always thought like CEO is a fake job. Like, oh, come on. How hard can it really be? Uh, it's fine. Well, turns out, <laughs> I can confirm, it is actually very hard. And it's very, yeah. very challenging. But also in a sense, I'm around the time of my life, it's just kind of like, I feel like this is actually the job I was supposed to be doing. It's like, I've really, it was very tough. And I had to learn a lot. And I've changed. I, I feel like I've lived 2.5 lifetimes over the last year. But... I was, I was going to ask you about that. Now, the, the weird thing is you still seem like the same Connor I, I know and love from before, but how has it changed you? Oh, it has changed me. Um, it's changed me in many ways. Um, one of the most interesting things we can talk about. I think the biggest emotional shift that it really elicited in me is that I'm much, much more tolerant of tension and yeah. like failure and chaos and, and so on. I used to be a lot more concerned about what other people thought about me and like nothing goes wrong. They don't you know that, you know, I want people to be, you know, in harmony and not for there to be problems. And I've just become much more tolerant. I'm just like, no, if you if you try to do hard things, it's not gonna be comfortable. It's gonna be a bumpy ride and the bumps don't stop. And you just have to get used to that. The goal you know, when it, it used to be that if there was a bump, I would immediately try to fix the bump. That's why immediately attention shifts the bump. How do I solve this? But I'm like, nope, this is how many bumps are there? Uh, okay, that's not, not lethal. It's fine. And getting that like level of like emotional, just like acceptance of it rather than fighting it, I think is, has been really, really valuable. Also, I'm just like less afraid to say things that might upset other people. I'm less afraid of conflict. I'm less afraid of people disagreeing with me or like getting into fights with me. Um, it's not that I was afraid of that. It was just, it took energy out of me. It's, mm. it. it's just mm. like, I could fight someone and I would do it. But afterwards, I'd feel like tired. I'd be like, Ugh. you know, I'd feel like bad. I, I, it would take a lot out of me. And now I've gotten much better in that it just doesn't take energy out of me. I'm still not happy about it, but it just, you know, I'll still sleep. I'll go home, I'll have dinner, I'll, I'll sleep. And then the next day I'll work harder and it's just fine. So that's like the biggest emotional difference. I think the biggest like, Thing that I've learned. Um, the biggest thing that I've learned is um, it's funny. I think this is. I think Eliezer is actually the person that said this to me in a different context. Like, there are no adults in the room. <laughs> this is every like this is really hard to explain to people until you've experienced it. Yeah. But everything in the entire world is so inefficient. Hmm. Nothing works. No one knows what they're doing. There is no master plan. Everything is fucking chaos. It's wild. It is unimaginable, like how much you can do as even like just like one person or as a small number of people by just actually really trying very hard. It is crazy how inefficient the market is. It is crazy how slow and uncreative big companies are. It is crazy how much, how easy it is to just like go talk to politicians and they will listen to you. It's, it's wild. The amount of influence, the amount of leverage you can gain as an individual or even as a small group of people by just really actually trying and working very hard and being you know, decently smart and decently charismatic is crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a few things to explore there. I mean, first of all, we could touch on what you just alluded to, which was that even before Inaloitha AI, you had an insane amount of influence well beyond what would be expected for basically a bunch of fairly young folks just kind of playing on their computers at home. But you, you were maybe you're in the right place at the right time. You were just on, on the, the start of an exciting technology trend. So, so there's that. I can also speak to this. I mean, I, I've recently, um, I've, I've got a startup on the CTO with, with Keith, who runs MLST. And just being completely honest with you, I came from the corporate world and I was in a sort of, you know, mid-level senior position and everything was great. Um, I was respected. I had, you know, a kind of, because we, we all want authority and respect and all these good things. Everything was very organized and mature. And stupidly, I thought going into a startup company, you know, I, 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 would, I would be somebody. And as you, I think you're kind of pointing to this and you can expand on it, but actually when you start a company, it's so right when Eliezer said there are no adults in the room. It was like we had all regressed to being children again. We were arguing about absolutely everything. Part of it is about the dynamics of, you know, like, you know becoming established and agreeing on sacred cows and, and lots of friction and, and so on. It was actually one of the most stressful and miserable experiences of, of my life. And we finally converged. And it takes a long time to converge and you, and you learn a lot of lessons. But is that a similar experience for you? So it wasn't quite that much because we already thought ourselves as children. And <laughs> so when I said there are no adults in a room, I didn't just mean us. I meant in the world. It's like I expected other people to be adults. Mm. But I knew, oh, wait, they're also all children. It's like I knew I was a kid. You know, I know my friends were kids. I know we were trying something. You know, we're trying to move from kid to adult. That's like we, we knew this is our us moving from kid to adult. But then we noticed, wait, where are the adults? Once we started to like understand how the world works and like how other things work and how people do things and like why they don't do things and such, and we're like, oh, oh, interesting. And like how much people would tell us that like, oh, you can't do X, and then like, why can't we do X? And like, well, if X was possible, someone would have already done that. <laughs> and then we're like, well, has someone tried it? And they're like, well, I don't know. Surely someone has. And then we try it, and it works because no one has tried. <laughs> it's yeah. it's just so unbelievably much about what people tell themselves is possible or is impossible is just completely fake. Like, the market yeah. isn't efficient. Like, the efficient market hypothesis is just wrong. It's just not true of reality. There's, like, very small areas where the market is efficient. You know, if you want to, like, you know, trade stocks, you know, as individual investors against, like, a large hedge fund, on average, yes, you're fucked. You know, or like, you know, weird, crazy derivatives or whatever. Yeah, you're fucked. Don't do that. You know, or if you want to be, I don't know, a Hollywood star. Yeah, that's hard. Like, because it's an adversarial environment. Don't try. It's stupid. But so much, so much of reality is so absurdly inefficient. Mm -hmm. No one is trying. If, if I can give one piece of advice to any of the smart people listening... If you're decently smart and decently creative and you've come up with an idea and you're like, well, this should obviously work. Well, someone else probably already tried it. They probably haven't. Go try it. Well, the key word is the word obvious because what you realize, and I think what you're alluding to, is that it might be obvious to you. And surprisingly, yeah. it's not obvious to other people. Yep, very true. And um, I had this realization because in the corporate world, there was an incubator and I, and I was in, I, I actually got to run one of the startups for a year. And all of a sudden, my mindset completely shifted. And my boss at the time, Justin, he, he said, Tim, you know, we're just dragging ourselves out of the Stone Age. 
and there's so much software that hasn't been written yet. And exactly as you say, you know, some of the, some of the problem is it's just a lack of imagination. It was easy for us to raise money, like surprisingly easy. We didn't raise as much as you did, but we still raised quite a bit of money. And I didn't realize how inefficient these large companies are. I mean, I'm very impressed that OpenAI are churning all of this stuff out, but um, certainly doing what we're doing. Over at Meta, you know, um, John Carmack just wrote a note. He just left Meta and he said, I am exasperated. Nothing gets done here. This is a shit show. So many bad decisions, so many committees. And the truth is, as you said, if you're creative and reasonably intelligent, because um, I don't want I don't want the charge of old privilege and all the rest of it. And there is some privilege. I think we're both privileged and lucky in many ways. But um, it's actually remarkably easy just to build something because all you need are the skills to write code. Yep, creativity and ability to write code and just yeah. actually shipping, actually doing things. It is it is really crazy. It is and like you mentioned earlier how like in Luthery I, I kind of already got lucky and I had this like weird scenario where I suddenly had all this weird leverage. And the question. Always in the back of my mind was, did I just get lucky? Or did I actually do something impressive? Or, and like, is the world actually inefficient? Because, like, why did no one else build Luther AI? It wasn't that hard. It was really fun. There's a lot of other smart people that could have done it, you know? And so now that I've, you know, now that I've done a startup again, and like, I'm like, oh, wait, no, there's like actually no one, like, very few people are trying. And there's like all this like free energy all around there's all these like opportunities that you just like have to like just do well let let me let me push on that then because i would like you in your own words to describe what it is you have from my perspective because you, you had an incredible following i mean i'm still on the Aletha ai discord and you would um, have these community events when you would talk and loads of people would join and everybody just listened to what you were saying you, you have the incredible orotation skills and you also have something which is quite common in, in CEOs, which is just like this incredible confidence and vision and people got on board with it. So it would, is that a fair summation? Do you think that's part of it? That's definitely part of it. Uh, that's something I uh, actually didn't realize for a long time. I was actually, it's very funny. So uh, I didn't realize that I was relatively charismatic for a long time. I like kind of knew it, but because it's actually very funny why I'm charismatic. Because I am a nerd, right? I am, I am, you know, a bit of an, I am more than a bit of an autist at heart, you know. And but it's very funny. I never, I never thought of myself as autistic when I was younger. I never got diagnosed when I was as autistic as when I was young because I was really good at talking. I was, I was really good at it. And the thing is, like, I got so obsessed with like being good at storytelling because I loved it so much. My my dad's a fantasy author, and I loved storytelling, and I loved D and D and like telling people things and like convincing. Eventually, as a kid, I don't know, I must have been like 12 or something, I was like, I noticed, man, I really like talking a lot. And, but like, it's kind of a dick move, like to always talk all the time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to become the best at talking so other people want to listen to me so I can just <laughs> never shut up. <laughs> so I, I like explicitly reasoned this as a kid. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just go practice. I'm going to get really good. So yeah, I, I just like got really good at it. And yeah. the, I just like, and that was really valuable. Because we, we were speaking about this before we hit the record button, and yeah, you're you're really good at talking, but you're very authentic. So it, you really passionately believe because it's it's obvious it, it reeks from every orifice that you really believe in in what you're saying, and people really get on board with that. There's there's a real kind of like buzz around it because we were saying it before we press the record button. I actually said I don't like interviewing CEOs. 
Um, actually, I've interviewed a couple of really good ones, so I don't, don't, don't let this be a reflection, but there are loads of folks that have reached out to be on the podcast, even like Eric Schmidt, for example, and I didn't reply because I knew it'd be a fucking boring conversation. And the reason for that is I just, I hate fakeness. And in the, in the corporate world in particular, and if you're the CEO, my brother is the CEO of my company. And, you know, it, it, it's like he's an automaton, mm. right? It's, it's just, it's a really boring conversation. Yeah. So, but you don't have that. You're yeah. weird like that. Yeah, I don't think, so I, I, I think, so first of all, thank you. But I think the, the genesis of that is something different. So I think that, like, the ability to like tell stories well and to like, you know, be charismatic and have like good, that kind of stuff is a lot of that is learned. I think what you're describing is, um, I think one of the traits I would I, I more like about myself, or like I'm more like, I'm, like for for me, like being good at talking feels like a skill. It's like, oh, you're good at basketball. And I'm like, yeah, thank you. I am good at basketball. Or like I, I played it a lot as a kid, you know. And but it doesn't feel like, you know, some like unusual thing. I feel like a lot of people could learn this if they just practice. Like some people think I have like a magical ability to be good at talking. I'm like, no, I just practice. <laughs> like I just practiced a lot as a kid. And I, 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 you know, I told stories and I wrote stories and I tried to convince, you know, tell people stories and like entertain them. So a lot of it is practice. But what you describe, and I think you're correct about this, is like this, like, um, there's another thing as a kid, which was different. It, again, it's very funny in retrospect, if I look back in my teenage me and like how autistic I was and how I didn't realize it. I had this thing where I had terrible insomnia as a kid, where like uh, if I went to bed, it would take like three hours until I fall asleep every single night, my whole life. It's gotten better now. But like, but it's very funny because as a teenager, I was like, oh, yeah, thinking time. Yeah. But I could like, I would like go to bed really giddy every night and spend like three hours just like thinking really hard about like my life, about what I want to accomplish, about like, my morality, like. What does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to do to be honest and to do the right thing? And I was obsessed with this. Mm. Obsessed with this. Mm. Like what, how can I do the most good? How can I help the most people? How could I like, you know, be the best person, et cetera, et cetera. I was obsessed with this question. And I would think about this every single day for like my entire teenage years. And what I really found was in many sense is that a lot of the things that are holding people back from like doing good things and like doing the things I want to do are actually not so much that they're be they're not smart enough or they're like lacking something. It's they're being stupid. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is that so much about what makes me now like more competent than I was when I was like a teenager, some of that is learning new things, you know, having new information, new skills, whatever, you know? But a huge amount of it is just like unlearning stupid things and like stories we tell ourselves and like stories I told myself and like inhibitions and fears about like like being honest like with the honesty thing it's like this is very common thing where like uh, like some people are like oh come you're so honest or you're so brave you say these things and I'm like well okay yeah why don't you do it too and like oh no I can't I'm like just 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 do it and like no 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 then these bad things will happen like what bad things like oh people will not like me or like whatever and like man just do the thing just do the thing. And so this like ability to like, is like this like beautiful, this is the thing I love about like autistic cultures is like this ability to just like, just see the thing for what it is. Just kind mm -hmm. of like cut through the social stuff. Just like kind of be like focus on what actually matters. And that's what I ultimately care about. It's just like what my, what I got out of this like, you know, autistic obsession this like almost OCD level obsession 
of like scrupulosity of like caring about what is the right thing to do, what should I do, how should I do it. The result was ultimately just like this clearing. Like it wasn't like my brain became more complicated, it became more simple. Mm -hmm. I'm more like, oh, okay. I don't actually care about all of these things. Like those are like, I don't really care about this, but this is something I truly care about. So I'm just gonna like cut away everything else. And I'm gonna focus on what I actually care about. Yeah, and that's the, the I mean, the tunnel vision is, is a feature of, of CEOs. And because yes. and, and, what you're talking about, in, in a sense, you could see it as a negative because you've become entrenched. So you said, I, I've, I've kind of converged. This is the basin I want to be in. And, and now I'm progressively filtering out everything. So, so now you and you were a voracious reader when you were younger as well. So you were in this kind of like knowledge acquisition phase. I mean, you, you told me before, you know, you read, for example, Society of Mind by Minsky. You, you, you've read a lot of stuff. You had loads and loads of book recommendations for me, but now you're a fucking busy guy. Yep. You're a busy guy. You've converged. And also, uh, maybe you can talk about a lot of people make demands on your time now, and you presumably you have to start filtering things out and you have to deal with a lot of flawed human beings. So how has, you know, in this new regime, how has that changed you? Absolutely great question. And I think you, you really hit it on the head in that if there's one regret I have. I, I wish I would have like done more things as a kid because I had more time back then. And, you know, I did, it's like, I was surprisingly like not that clever as a kid. It was like, you know, it's like, I don't know. I feel like I was stupid as a kid. I, I didn't really read that much. I didn't only really started reading like after I was 18. And like as a kid, I didn't really read that much. I didn't really do that much. I kind of just like thought a lot, <laughs> you know? I just kind of like do thinking really hard, but I didn't really gather evidence about reality. And that like definitely held me back for a long time. So like I'm now at the point and like where the difference is between now and a year ago is bits of evidence I've collected about reality from actually doing things in the real world is that I've, I think for years now, I mean, probably since like my early twenties, I've actually been held back. I didn't realize this, but I was held back not by my knowledge or my intelligence. I was, I was academic enough. I was educated enough. I was, you know, verbal enough. But I was held back by not trying things in the real world, not talking to people, not doing business, not building things, not failing, not meeting new people, not traveling, not doing all of this. And so in that regard, it's definitely the case that I don't have time to like read tons of books anymore. And that does lose me some things because I did, you know, especially in my like later 20s, like when I was like you know, 25 or something, I spent like all day reading, every single day, just all day, just nonstop. Mm -hmm. And that was very helpful. And that's not, but I'm now in an overhang, like I've read too much. <laughs> now I need to gather other kinds of information. And over the last year, I've learned so much from interacting with reality, from yeah. meeting people, from going to Brussels and talking to politicians, from mm. building a product, from trying to raise money, from all these kinds of things. So in that regard, I've learned different things. There's different kinds of evidence that I've been able to gather more effectively and I've gotten better and more effective at gathering evidence. So a, 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 a word that keeps getting brought up at Conjecture that other people, I think, don't use or use differently than we do. It's good epistemology. Yeah. I think epistemology, so the way, it is not, I'm sure the philosophers will argue with me what the correct definition is, but one of, the way I think about epistemology, having good epistemology, is kind of the ability to like come into a new field or a new area where you know nothing about it and you 
know how to gain the evidence you need to gain to build the theories you need to build to succeed at what you want to succeed at. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, up the meta hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And this is like a very universal skill. It's like a super universal skill. And like, I think it's not, it wasn't obvious to me for a long time that this is a skill you can even practice. It was like, mm-hmm. you can practice a field. You can go into a topic and you can work on it. But it was clear to me that you can practice the skill of getting good at skills. But that's actually obviously true now in retrospect. Yeah, and uh, I want to tease that apart a little bit. So at first you were saying, and by the way, people like Yann Lacoon make the opposite argument. They think that AGI should be mostly observational rather than interactive. But um, I agree with you that there's only so much you can learn from reading books because what you're doing is you're reading vicarious experience. And having a strong learning signal through interaction. Now, actually, there's a bit of luck because it's the opportunity to, to do what you're doing. Um, I mean, similarly, anyone who goes out there and makes a startup, even if it fails, you will learn more doing that than reading a thousand books. Absolutely agree. Like, like genuinely, like when, one of the number one things I love to see on people's CVs is failed startups. It yep. doesn't matter if they succeed or not. The fact that they tried, they went out and they interacted with reality will give mm. them so many bits of evidence, so many skills, so much knowledge that cannot be gained other ways. It's like, it's so impactful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've thrown yourself into the fire and it's changed you. Yeah, it has. And yeah. it really has, but for the better. It feels like I've been sharpened. You know, it feels like I've been, you know, I've, been, I've become more where I was heading rather than like I'm a different person now. It's like, I like to think that like, every version of me throughout time, if they could like look forward to me now, they would still recognize me. We would yeah. disagree and they'd be confused about some of the things I believe and some of the things I do, but we would recognize each other. You know, we would, we would see that we're still the same person. And, we, and I think that's a, even so, I'm quite different from younger me in many ways. And I yeah. have some very different opinions and some very different views in reality. Than yeah. I'd, I'd like to talk about your, your learning rate though. So if, if, if for example, we discovered over the next five years that, you know, AGI doesn't happen in the way that you think it does. How much of your identity is tied up in in this current kind of journey? I mean, ideally zero. Like, ultimately, my goal is the only thing I really care about is to make a good future for mankind, is to make everyone happy. The fundamental thing I care about is that I don't want people to suffer anymore. No one. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And where does that come from? You know, you can pick your own orthogonality, you know, orthogonal goals, right? I just really don't like people suffering. I really, really, really don't like it. And I want it to stop and I'm going to make it stop. And I want things to be nice. I want people to be happy. I see, um, especially as a kid, this was like, um, it's very silly. It's, uh, it's very silly, but it's like a very autistic thing. It's like this, like, as a kid, when I was like I don't know, eight or nine or something, I would like, uh, having, I remember having a newspaper and I read this newspaper and I haven't really read a newspaper before, like never really actively. And I read some article. I don't know what it was about, but it was something like pretty boring. It was like, I don't know, it was like, it was like a car accident happened and like someone like got hurt or something. And then, and just, it just like hit me. I just like, I was like put myself into this scenario and like, oh, this poor woman, like, oh my God, like she might lose her job and like, in pain and like 
oh, she has a small daughter, and like, oh no, what do the daughter think? She's gonna be scared of cars for the rest of her life. Like, oh my god, like, it was this very small thing. It was very, very small. But then was, I noticed, if I put just the littlest bit of creativity into like imagining actually the suffering. And then it just hit me that this was everywhere. There's everything from the smallest things we do every single day, you know, every heartbreak, every, you know, failed, missed opportunity, every miscommunication, every, you know, accident, every tragedy. It's just like, it's just so horrific. It's just the true, like, as a teenager, I had this theory that like every, every drama can be equally or better rewritten as a horror. I was, I, I loved horror movies. They was always my favorite. I had this uh, obsession with things that frightened me. And I found that I really quickly got super numb to like monster movies or like aliens or like, whatever. It's because it's like, this is a monster, right? You know, it kills you or whatever. Like, but it's, it's like, it's not real. You know, it's like, it's like kind of fun. It's fun if you have some like crazy, creepy monster that, you know, you know, skins the protagonist alive and like, how isn't that kind of like, oh, well, it's like gross, you know, it's like kind of fun. But the one that really got me, the, like the horror movies that like still stuck with me were always the ones that were the least abnormal. It was always just like something tragic happened, just like someone had a terrible life and their parents abused them and they commit suicide. Those are the ones that really stuck to me. Because those are real. And this happens to people all the fucking time. And I feel like not wanting that is just obvious. I think everyone wants those things to stop. And I had this weird experience as a kid. Is I would like, it was obvious to me like, oh, I have to cure aging. Of course. Because like, you know, look at all these people are getting old and it hurts. They're sad and it's bad and they die. And then when people die, that's sad. So I'm just going to, so we just have to not do that anymore. And when I would bring this to people, they would look at me like I'm crazy. They'd be like, oh, no, actually, aging is good. It's, it gives life meaning. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, what? No, people are sad. Sad is bad. <laughs> so in a sense, I always was a bit of like just this like, so this is what I really focused on. Like, you know, AI or like anti-aging or like whatever are all instrumental. All my my full identity is I want people to not be sad anymore. Okay, because because two things jump out at at me there. First of all, I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm pleased and and a little bit surprised just the 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 empathy that you feel at a cellular level. And most people would be surprised by that because you were just talking about like um you know again not to essentialize rationalists, but you kind of think of them as being slightly autistic and low on empathy. And that's a surprise because you're very high on empathy. So I would actually push back against that. Okay. I'm gonna push back against that. I think actually autistic people, not all of them, but many of I think you, if you selected for the highest empathy individuals, most of them will be autistic. Really? And so the reason I think this is because so we can talk about autism and my theory, my skits theory for autism for longer. But the reason for this is, is I think that a lot of things that holds people back from true empathy is exactly these things I was talking about, is that people galaxy brain themselves. They add in all this complexity, these mm. like social roles, these like Kids often are very empathetic, but then they're taught they're not supposed to care, hmm. or, you're, or you learn to not care, or things are so horrible, terrible things happen, you learn not to care, or you just follow your social rules. Like in, in your culture, maybe there's this, there, you know, your tribe is suffering is bad, but the other tribe, well, they suffer, that's good actually, so you shouldn't worry about that. And it takes the like, um, it's like true, just autistic, just like disregard of social norms and like, like taking things seriously 
to like actually see. I remember I, I talked to someone I know about this, and uh, I talked to them like as a kid. I was obsessed with like empathy and like making the world a better place, and I didn't want people to hurt. And 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 she was like, well, yeah, yes, yeah. and I, I see that was I'm, I've been telling you is like this is what makes you so human, you know, this empathy. I'm like, no, 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 you're very wrong. Empathy is very not human. A very, very, very empathetic creature is an alien. Really, really moral people, really moral people, do not look like charismatic Hollywood star. No, they're weird fucking aliens. They're weird autistic aliens. They get obsessed and they write massive papers about simulated souls in the far future universe and how we can maximize the long-termism. That's what maximum empathy actually looks like. If you actually maximize your utility function for empathy, what you get is people like Bostrom and Eliezer. They look like aliens because it's really weird and humans are usually not like this. So this is a fascinating point. I mean, first of all, I, w I want to get to that in a second, but would you describe yourself as a transhumanist? You can describe me that way, but I don't associate with the movement. Interesting, because it, it, it sounds quite similar, but I guess um, maybe I've been thinking about this the wrong way, but what you're describing, because I had assumed that it was almost like a, a pathology of the lack of empathy to kind of make up for it in a very technical way. And I would say what you're describing, you know, we were saying earlier about um, our, our software is buggy, mm -hmm. right? And, and we need to fix it. And what you're talking about is a very technical form of empathy, which most people can't, can't really um, feel in the same way. Yep. If you really want to see, who, if I had to pick the most empathetic man to ever live, it would be Brian Tomasic. He's, a, he's an author. He wrote a bunch of essays. And they're the weirdest, most inhuman, alien shit you ever read in your life. Most people read this and will actually conclude that he may be the most evil man to ever live. For example, he thinks deforestation is good. And the reason he thinks deforestation is good is because it kills lots of animals. And because that's good because those animals in nature would have suffered. Because they'll be like sick and they'll be eaten and killed. So if we just kill them and like pave over it, there'll be less animals that experience less suffering. And then we can put humans there and they suffer less or we can have, you know, like some other like pets that are not suffering. Mm. You have to be an alien to come up with this. I like, but like, this is what, you know, dial up all the way of empathy actually looks like. It does not look very human at all. It looks really, really fucking weird. So the paradox is that a lot of people, we, we won't say who they are. These are people who have, let's say, sensory empathy and they don't recognize what you're doing as empathy. Yep. They don't understand it. Yep. What would you say to them? It's very different. It's, um, the, uh, it's, I think a lot of people who have sensory empathy don't actually take empathy seriously as a concept, is that they're not optimizers. They're not maximizing what they're, these are, they have a proxy, they have a heuristic, they have a feeling, they have a thing, which is associated with that. It is um, correlated with what we empathy, but it's not the maximum. So this is like, like Brian Tomasic is the example of like is like the human equivalent of a paperclip maximizer for empathy. Is like humans would be like, oh, it's so silly. Why would the paperclip maximizer only want paperclips? And like, well, why is Brian Tomasic only want empathy? You know, why is Brian Tomasic only want to re reduce suffering? This is what it looks like. If you have a very intelligent system, if an optimizer, it will go to really weird extremes. Most humans are not optimizers. The state of optimizing, of like try, actually trying your hardest to, a, to maximize a goal, is actually not how most humans work. A friend of mine had a very cynical uh, take. He said, most humans are like wind-up toys. 
they optimize for n steps and then they halt. It doesn't matter where they halt. That's just as far as they go. And they don't even feel the obligation to have to go further than this. It's actually very unnatural for humans to really try to go as many steps as they can go. And that's why when people do try to do this, they can often achieve looks like supernatural amounts of things because most people don't really try. They don't go for arbitrary amount of steps. They go so many steps and with empathy. You know, you know, this many steps. Like, you know, okay, you know, my family? Yeah, sure. You know, my neighbors? Sure, cool. Um, my country? Sure. This other country I don't like? Um, okay, let's, you know, slow, slow down, slow down, slow down. You know, that's what n steps of optimization looks like rather than arbitrary steps. Arbitrary steps says, okay, other country? Yeah, absolutely. All humans? Yeah, absolutely. Animals? Yeah, sure. Uh, plants? Probably. You know, that's, that's what optimization looks like. It gets, humans exist in a very small regime. And this applies to everything. It applies to our abilities. It applies to our thoughts, our emotions. It applies to everything. Humans are very bounded. And this is one of the things why AI is going to be very different. It's going to look way more like Brian Tomasek than it is going to look like you and me, necessarily. It's going to look like, a, like systems that take these things and bring them to such extremes and are willing to go so far because that's how we build them, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. So, I mean, this is, this is moral status. It, it, it decays exponentially with time and space. I mean, even the way that we understand causality is, is very flawed. You know, like look at road traffic accidents, for example. You know, it's not, not easy sometimes to assign who's morally accountable. But um, what are the limits then? Because if you take this to the nth degree, surely you can be fooled by randomness. And you can, um, it, it almost becomes pathological. You know, you might do things which are apparently extreme. As I said, Brian Tomasso thinks we should kill all animals. And I disagree with him on that, but his reasoning is sound. His reasoning is completely sound, uh, given his objectives, given what he believes and his objective is completely sound. And you say pathological. Yeah, Brian recently stopped writing because he basically had a mental breakdown and said he just can't handle it anymore. He's going to live in a farm alone with his parents and not talk to anyone ever again. So, yes, yeah. this is a very unnatural and a very non-human state to be in. And, you know, God bless my man, Brian Tomasic, even if I strongly disagree with him. And I think if we implemented his ethics, that would be a moral catastrophe. Um, he actually tried. He actually really tried to do as most good as possible. He really, really, really tried. He has an essay, which is, can electrons suffer? He really tried. That's what really trying looks like. He wanted to reduce suffering, and he went all the way. And yeah. he was very mentally ill, obviously. Like this man obviously had, you only go that far if you're very ill. Like, you have to be very neurotypical to be capable of this. And obviously, I don't agree. I'm not Brian, and I don't think we should kill all animals. Anyway, I don't think we should, you know, and all the others, some of the things. But clearly, there is... I also think that many other humans are not sufficiently empathetic. So, Because, like, for example, if I tell people, hey, I think people should not die, they're like, no, 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 it's, it's normal, it's, it's, it's the correct thing. I'm like, man... You don't even take your empathy seriously. You don't actually take the reduction of empathy seriously. Like, death is bad. People dying is sad. We should just not do that. I know. I mean, what, what worries me, because you could, you could use um, a similar argumentation to justify the actions of, of the Unabomber, for example, or a similar... Uh, you, you could argue, basically, because there's a theme to our conversation, which is that um, our thinking is anthropomorphic and it's problematic. So we should dehumanize our thinking and, and be more rational and then 
you get to a stage that appears to an external observer like nihilism. Like, for example, I can say if all humans, I think this is a thought experiment in philosophy, if all humans died in their sleep painlessly tonight, it would kind of reduce the suffering in the world. Therefore, let's do it. Yep. That, that just seems, it's, un, it's unimaginable to most people. Yes, it is a completely reasonable argument given the premises. If you accept the premises, it is a reasonable argument. I just don't accept the premises. <laughs> like, I mean, lol, I'm not a consequentialist. I'm not a negative utilitarian. Like, if you're a negative utilitarian, then yes, that argument makes perfect sense. I'm not. And I don't claim to be. I have deontological principles. One of my deontological principles is I don't kill all humans. I don't have a justification for that. Like, a sufficiently intelligent alien, or Brian, or whatever, can give me an argument that should convince me to kill all humans. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But that is a deontological commitment. That is what I mean. That's what it means to not be a consequentialist. Yeah. You are a consequentialist. You have to do these things. You have to be capable of doing these things. And then, if you're a consequentialist who is also human, you get people like the Unabomber, who is just dumb. Like, sorry, Ted, but like, his main other than being cruel and just like you know horrific, it was just stupid. <laughs> like. If his stated goals were what he described, how did he expect this plan to actually achieve that? Like, Lamau? It's like, it's like the, like, you know, pseudo-rationalists who are like, oh, to stop AGI, we should bomb Taiwan. And I'm like, man, even if you did that, what exactly is your thinking that thinks that plan would actually work? Like, are you insane? So there's, there's the part of, like, consequentialism can lead you to bad outcomes. And, like, I mean, so there's the, the, the cheeky answer is, is that, well, if you did it right, no, it wouldn't. Hmm. If you were good at consequentialism and there was a bad option, you just wouldn't pick it. Like, obviously, obviously so. But then there's the other thing, which is like approximate consequentialism, where if you have a human who's trying to reason consequentially over a space they can't reason over, yes, they're going to make mistakes. And in that process, those mistakes can be like arbitrarily bad from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. What else do you want to talk about? I haven't really talked about conjecture much or about work at all, really. Tell me more. I'd love to talk about it more. So it's been, it's been a wild ride of conjecture. And you know, we're about 18 people now. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of interesting things. Uh, we're, in, we're, in a, we're a bit of an unusual company um, where, like I've been, I've been talking about, at heart, what I really want, what we want to do is solve the alignment problem and you know, create a good future for the many. Make things well, but we're also very pragmatic in that a research is expensive, and you need you need to pay people salaries and you need to compute and so on. So we also do a certain amount of product work. So we also build like AI products that are not pushing the state of the art because we consider that to potentially be dangerous, but use the kind of creativity and like you know also technology that already exists to make useful applications. Mm-hmm. So we're currently we're kind of like iterating through like lots and lots of different ideas, kind of really quickly like doing sprints and like finding things you know there. If, if people are, I hope people will be interested in trying our various products once they hit the market and see if they're any good or not. Could you give us any hints on what you're developing? So currently, we're just we're developing uh, a useful uh, meeting notes tool, just a simple like you know transcription tool that can you know, also like summarize, allows you to like do speaker mm. detection stuff. Oh, similar to what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, very similar. Very similar. We're not sure if this is going to be our forever tool. We're, yeah. we're sprinting and trying a bunch of different tools. And actually, funny, the first tool we built, so the, it was very funny. We had this great vision for this really cool, complex writing assistant tool. 
and we built it, and then we found it was just way too complicated for users. And we're like, damn, like people, <laughs> the, people just don't understand this tool. It's too complicated. Yeah. So we kind of like pivot away from that. And we have a bunch of other ideas of things we're going there. But ultimately, what we really care about is we think that you know AGI is coming soon. Very powerful systems are coming. We need to really advance our theory, our understanding, our ability to align these systems. We, um, so we do a lot of like interpretability work, mechanistic interpretability work. We do a bunch of other work. I am very soon, probably by the time the podcast comes out, it'll be open. I'll have uh, published my personal research agenda, which has been secret for quite a while. Um, but I want to publish it so other people can like critique it and like comment on it. So hopefully by the time this, this podcast is out, you can go take, give it a look and tell me I'm crazy. Um, uh, it's, but yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride. And we also do a lot of work on trying to understand, trying to work on coordination and working with other people to basically just, I mean, at heart, I want other people to see that this problem is real. Mm -hmm. It is a technical problem. It is not a problem. Uh, it was very funny. I was in Brussels um, talking to politicians and one of them kind of like, kind of like sneeringly noticed that I was like on the, one of these like AGI people like, oh, so you believe in this like singularity thing, huh? And now I was like, I think whether singularity exists or not is a purely technical question about reality and it's independent of my personal philosophical or religious beliefs. And he was like, hmm, good point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the, the, the message I, I try to push to people hmm. is that these questions are fundamentally scientific in nature. Um, there is also hard philosophical questions, but whether these problems exist, whether AGI is possible, whether you know, alignment is hard or not are like mostly technical questions. And I think, and I want to also kind of push to people that I think alignment is like the kind of problem that's not get solved by default. Like there are, in most worlds, if you don't try, it just doesn't get solved. And mm -hmm. just keep building stronger and stronger systems, which like slowly, you know, drift away from what humans actually want. And then eventually just something weird happens and then we're suddenly stuck in some world which we don't like and there's no way out. You know, it doesn't have to be that all people even die. I mean, obviously, but like, it could also just be we get stuck in some kind of like, you know, corporate, you know, advertisement hellscape forever and just we can't escape because all the governments are run by AI now and we're just stuck. You know, that's also a possible outcome. So, build, building software uh, products is really difficult. It requires a different culture, a different mindset, different types of people, lots of challenges and so on. And it feels basically orthogonal to, to the alignment work that you're doing. And so now you have to hire different types of people, divide your effort and resources and so on. How do you wrestle with that? It is a very, it is a very hard problem. It's been less hard in practice than I expected it to be. So I, I do, I, like this is the original sin of conjecture. Hmm. The original sin is that we have to divide our attention to a certain degree, but we're just like pragmatic about it. I talked earlier about how I've become more tolerant of, uh, of um, tension. And yep. the word tension was like specifically chosen. Uh, because this is a great example of tension. This is like mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance. There's tension here. And at first, I was like, I was, I tried to like, you know, bend over backwards to remove this tension. But now I'm just like, oh no, there is a tension here and I'm just going to accept that. Like, this is just a cost I'm willing to pay. Mm. Of course, if some, you know, benevolent billionaire watching the show would like to just, you know, shower us with sufficient funds that we can just focus fully on our research and don't have to focus on product, please give me a call. But I don't expect us to live in that world. I, I expect us to live in a world where if you need billions, say, to do cutting-edge research and to hire enough researchers and to do lobbying and like who knows what else is necessary, right? 
whatever is necessary to solve this problem, then VC and like products and like in this coming AI you know, tsunami that I expect is just the most effective way to raise the necessary resource. In a way, it's a form of instrumental convergence. Yes. It's, yes. I, have, I have undergone instrumental convergence in the sense that I don't care about money for its own sake. Hmm. I care about you know, improving people's lives and making people happy and like, you know, you know, all these things. But instrumentally, to achieve those goals, you need money, you need friends, you need yeah. influence, you need power, you, know, you need to do these things. And so I just do those. It's not because I enjoy them. I don't, it's just part of the job. Interesting. Because I, I want to um, unpick a little bit. From an, Investors care about returns. Yep. <clears throat> and they will see that you have, I mean, you know, my co-founders, it really pisses them off that I do so much stuff on MLST. They think I'm obsessed with MLST. And I think that it's hugely beneficial for our business as well. And, and I, I, I know it will go somewhere interesting. I, I know it's enriching and, and it's magical in lots of different ways. And I would imagine you have the same thought about the alignment work that even though they seem orthogonal, actually they're not. Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it's the ultimate problem. It is the best problem. You know, it is the thing that needs to be solved. You solve alignment, you solve everything. You know, you get you, you good end, you know, you shake hands, GG, well played, you know, it's we did it. We did it, boys. You know, you can build everything. You, you, once we get AGI, it's if we solve if we solve alignment, you get everything. You can build everything, build all the most valuable products. You can cure all diseases. You can, you know, you know, bring world peace, have everyone, you know, negotiate superhumanly well and like be friends with each other. You can achieve, you know, every product will ultimately be bottlenecked. Every Every goal you want to achieve will be bottlenecked by control once intelligence and power is no longer a limiting factor. Currently, our systems are still limited by their power and their intelligence. But more and more, the bottleneck is going to be our ability to control them. Hmm. And we expect, and we are currently observing, in our opinion, that people are vastly underestimating this bottleneck. And that this bottleneck might be so critical that you know, it causes catastrophe if it's unindulged. Unresolved, but also if you just want value, you know, and ultimately we want value, right? We want not just like you know value in the abstract sense, but in the practical sense of like things that people like and things that pe make people happy. You know, you know, sure, if you develop a drug that cures cancer, that will make you a lot of money, but also it cures cancer. That's fucking great. <laughs> like nice, awesome. So for that, you need to solve the alignment problem. And so you know, it's just kind of in a in a world, I think, where people maybe had the same, uh, had more of the like autistic, you know, straightforwardness that I do, I think a lot of people would just fund that and wouldn't need the short-term returns. Mm -hmm. But I'm practical, and that I'm just like understand that that's just not how the world works. It's actually a really interesting thing. This is another thing I learned over the last year, is that the biggest bottleneck on doing great things, to my surprise, is often trust, mm. and it sounds so banal. Like when I first thought about this, or when I was first told this by a friend of mine, I felt I thought it was like, nah, I like no, we're bottling up our resources or intelligence or like whatever. But more and more, I realized that like, no, man, it's so hard to get like people to truly, actually trust each other and not get scammed. Yeah. Like if you can find a way to like, one hundred percent like check that someone's not a scammer, and they you can trust them completely. Like imagine what would be possible. This is actually one of my. Uh, schizo things, if I, if I wasn't working on AI, if I thought AI was further away and I wanted to save the world, 
I would probably work on mind reading technology. And the reason I would do that is, is because it would allow you to coordinate. You could check for liars and then everyone could, you could just have perfect honesty and people could, you could have, you could have trustworthy collaboration that cannot be broken. Of course, in practice, that would probably lead to dystopia. But so I wouldn't actually probably build this. But yeah. it is a funny, it's a fun sci-fi vision to think about where everyone want to think of mind, you know, mind reading, you first think of dystopia, but then also imagine you can have your politicians be checked that they never lie to their constituents. And you can check that if someone signs a contract that they will never break the contract. And you can like enforce this. Uh, if you could do this, man, the level of coordination, the level of like trust you could build in an efficient, organiza in an efficient organization, in an efficient group, an efficient society, I think, you could, uh, I think you could get a lot out of that. Probably not actually possible, but it's funny to think about. Yeah, and ironically, another form of alignment but yeah, trust trust makes the world go round. Even when I invite guests onto MLST, they'll say yes if they trust that I'll give them a good interview. So we 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 have, um, you know, like a we have a concept of status in our mind and and who we trust. And a lot of it actually is is a theory of mind. It's 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 we predict how other people will behave in in certain situations. Yep. Yep. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So can you speak to specifically the the work that you've been doing? I can't speak to the work specifically that I personally have been doing at this time, yeah. unfortunately. Oh, uh, oh, you can't at all? No. Um, anything that you've published? I've talked about six other people who are not me have published at the company. Okay. My, yeah. I personally have not published very much. Okay, okay. Uh, we have, um, I think the most interesting work scientifically is the interpretability work we've done. So we have a number of posts, which I, I'm not going to go into the details now, but are worth reading, where we've just been doing lots of interesting experiments trying to like iterate on... Um, trying to understand language models, how they work internally, neural networks and stuff. Mostly small things, we're just kind of like been working very quickly, trying many things. Um, there is also a, so this is something I think a lot of people won't recognize as something very valuable, but I think is super exciting, mm. which is, so we're a very weird company. For one, we have an epistemology team, which is a very weird thing for a startup yeah, to have. Yeah, and everyone thinks we're crazy for this. And I keep telling, no, 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 no. Like, like, this is where I spend my crazy points on. Because like I, I, we we you know cut on epistemology earlier today, but I think epistemology doing it right is actually the most powerful like meta skill you can have. Of course, most people just don't do it right. Like my in my opinion, if you were good at like good philosophy should make you stronger. Mm -hmm. Being a great philosopher should make you better at everything. You know, you should be better at your job. You should be better at your relationships. You should be better at understanding science. You should be better at everything. Of course. Unfortunately, that's not how most philosophy is done. It's actually really sad. I feel like a lot of people don't even expect philosophy should be useful. I don't know how it got to this point. But like, if for me, you know, if you're the greatest philosopher to ever live, you should be good at everything. You should be a complete polymath genius. But that's unfortunately not how things really are in practice. Does, but, does that mean that you have hired knowledge engineers? In a way, yes. That's a, what do they do? That's a great question. And they do some things I can't talk about, some okay. things that, that will be published. So they've done some things that are like pretty, you know, standard philosophy stuff, like trying to like understand how science is done. Like mm -hmm. in the past, how was science done? Why, how can these be applied to alignment? How, why is alignment hard? There's a pretty good post that Adam Sheen, who's the head of our um, epistemology team, wrote called Epistemological Vigilance for Alignment, mm -hmm. where he talks about, uh, uh, I, I had a hand in that post as well. And we talked a lot about how, why is alignment particularly difficult? Like, why is it different from physics? Mm. A lot of people look at physics and they see physics as this like high status science. 
And like, well, oh, look, we solved quantum physics. So like, surely, like, we can solve any problem. But like, no, quantum physics is actually a very easy problem, epistemologically speaking, compared to many other problems. Like, there's so many ways in which physics is kind of like the easiest science. Like, you have like these like repeatable experiments you can do. You have lots of data. You have like these like simplified systems. You have like you just like ignore second order correlations. Like all these reasons mm -hmm. that don't apply to like harder. So like what are really hard sciences are things like predict the stock market. That's hard because it's adversarial. Like you interacting with the system makes it resist you. That is very hard to study. And we do not have good epistemology of how to study adversarial systems or chaotic systems. Chaotic systems are kind of like a more general class of adversarial systems. Adversarials are like a particularly bad system in this regard. And yeah, I expect, for example, AGI to be, in a sense, adversarial and chaotic and various other properties. So that's a lot of stuff they've been doing. Um, they also are writing a sequence of posts, which I think are really, really great. And I really recommend people. They're very short. I really recommend what we call building blocks. Hmm. which is just like one page each kind of explaining a very simple like philosophical idea or like a very simple like piece of advice or a very simple like idea of like how to think better or like optimize better. The long-term goal is, as I've said earlier that like being an optimizer is an unnatural thing for a human to be. Like most people are not optimizers. And that's really bad because we need optimizers to actually solve hard problems. Like, like you know, if you want to be the best at science and you want to or to want to solve the hardest problem, you have to be an optimizer, you know? Um, mm. And I think a lot of it can be taught, actually. Um, I think learning to be an optimizer is a thing you can learn. I've learned a much more how to be an optimizer than I have in the past. I'm much better at just, like, accomplishing arbitrary goals, um, which is an interesting state to be in. And the Building Block series has a bunch of, like, our, like, distilled things that we found that have, like, helped us improve this and like raise a sanity waterline, like help people make more reasonable epistemological decisions and thinking. They're also working on some other stuff that I can't currently talk about. But yeah, it's very weird. It's a big bet. And like a lot of people think I'm crazy for doing it, but you know, we'll see. Fascinating. I think I did read the blog post about the interpretability on the language model and, and I don't I don't want to trivialize it in any way, but it, it was something along the lines of what if it is an AGI and we don't know? Is that is that, is that a fair summarization? Or? Um we don't have a single post about that specifically. Uh, we have a few posts of like talking about various topics. That I'm not sure exactly which one you're talking about. I'm not sure exactly which one you're talking about. Oh, maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I think it was something along the lines of what if it's um, deceiving us? Oh, yes, yes. That's the yeah. how to defeat mind readers. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Lee wrote that post. That's one of the posts that uh, one of our researchers has written. We've written a whole bunch of these. But, okay. And yeah, that's an interesting one where it's like, you know, uh, how could a system that is trying to trick us trick us? And yeah. there's a lot of ways. There's many, many ways they can trick us. So that was more of a brainstorming post. Um, okay. We've also done some technical work. We've had like uh, on like polytopes. We have one on the SVD directions are very interpretable in transformer models. A few other posts like this. Most of them are quite short. They're like less than a paper. They're like we we focused more on like producing small interesting posts and we're like optimizing more for like small interesting pieces of information rather than trying to like produce massive papers that take six months to write and we're getting much faster at that too yeah so that's kind of like more the direction of like where the interpretability is currently heading of course the long-term vision is to develop much better interpretability theories and tools and methods yeah because that's a great example you know we were talking earlier about that creative insight and most people would not think for a second that 
let's say GPT. I mean, you said when we spoke last time, uh, we had we had dinner out, and you know there was that ref refrigerator token. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes the characters in in the simulation become self aware that they're in a simulation, or in the case that you just spoke about, maybe something like GPT three is actually trying to deceive us, and it's the nature of it is actually different to what we think it is, and that's something that most people just wouldn't have the imagination to come up with that. Yep, yep, it's um, it's very true. This is a uh, this is another classic in the alignment world is that uh, it's kind of like futurist whack-a-mole, where the usual way this game this this happens is uh, the futurist says, um, "Hey, I think you know AGI, you know, could do some like crazy things, and like things we can't understand or predict." And then the interlocutor will be like, well, okay, name one thing. And then they name a thing. And like, oh, no, that's actually irrelevant because actually that can be fixed using this. And then, and then like, well, yeah, sure. But what about, you know, scenario two? And like, oh, okay, yeah. But like, we could have done this other thing to solve that. But then, and then the future at some point is like, don't you see the problem? You didn't think of one or two before I pointed it out to you. Yeah, yeah but I could fix it once you pointed it out. Like, no, no, no. The generalized form of this is that a sufficiently intelligent system will come up with even more things that neither you nor me can come up with. Yeah. This is a, it's, it's very funny how often I've run into this exact scenario where yeah. I, I, I like give people, a, like people ask me for a scenario and I'm like, fine, here's the scenario. And they're like, oh, okay. And well, I'm not worried anymore because I could fix that one. And then they don't generalize to the general case like, okay, but you didn't come up with it either. So what are all the other things you're not coming up with? If you're dealing with a system that is smarter than you, you should just expect it can trick you. Even if you can't come up with how it can trick you, you should just assume there is something you can do that can trick you. Yeah, amazing. Connor, this has been great. Um, what are your plans for Christmas and, and the new year? Heading home to my family. I haven't seen them in a long time because I'm going to spend some time in Germany and then I'm going to come back to London with my German friends in Tau and we're going to celebrate New Year's here. So really looking forward to that. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Connor Lee here, it's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Tim. Cool.